welcome to episode 99 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. I'm Hannah Rassinen. And I'm James Cohn. And we are in James's uh, apartment recording our top films of 2019 for the Swamp Flicks podcast. Yay! It's our four-year anniversary as a podcast and our five-year anniversary as a film criticism website. How do y'all feel about that? Weird. Like, it just makes me, like, reflect on time and how short it is. Freaks Mm. me out. Like, I feel like it's it's been, like, maybe a year or two. I'm like, what? Shit, it has been five years. Also, like, it's best of the decade season for a lot of, like, websites right now. And that has me thinking about time, like, crazy in general. Like, it was meant to happen. (laughs) There's a lot going on right now. I think also it's made me kind of reflect on kind of where we started this whole thing. Like, I remember me, you, and Brittany kind of working together at Deloitte. And that's sort of where it started. And then starting the podcast with you and kind of how it's grown over the years. And, like, I'm kind of proud of this little thing we've created. So. It's funny. Yeah. We were just yelling at each other about killer doll movies. <laughs> and <laughs> look at us now. Yeah, and I think we've simplified the podcast in general, but these next few episodes we're doing are kind of celebrating all these milestones. So it's about to get complex, like the killer doll episode where we just talk about too many movies for I mean, I too long. I mean, I liked Well... I want to go around and just ask y'all, because this is always the hardest part is like cramming for these uh, best of the year lists. What is the one movie you wish you had seen before you recorded today? What, what didn't you get to in time? For me, it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I am like a big Tarantino fan. And even though I kind of heard mixed things about it, like I just didn't get around to seeing it. I, from everything I've read, I think it, it would have been worth the watch like i did any of y'all happen to catch it i saw it i thought it was okay well what i was fascinated by with this one is like the criticism i heard is like oh they pretty much just hang out for two hours and then crazy shit happens like in the last five minutes but that kind of sounds awesome to me and i kind of trust tarantino to write good dialogue and like dicaprio and brad pitt like i could see getting a lot of enjoyment out of just watching these actors just chill for two hours so it's fascinating to me. I like I do want to check that one out. I think it is like interesting as a hangout movie in that way, but also I just like that it's an angry movie and it's Tarantino like lashing out at young people is like the vibe I get from it. Hmm. Like it says like get off my lawn. <laughs> I'm still relevant. You whippersnappers aren't like, you know, taking over yet kind of movie, which I found more interesting than, you know, maybe every single scene. It, it, it's okay. <laughs> it'll, it'll come back around for those Oscars, like, re-releases in the MC in, like, a couple mm-hmm. weeks, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. What, what about you, Hannah? So, I really wanted to see Pain and Glory, which is um, Pedro Almodovar's most recent movie, semi-autobiographical. And I really love him, and I love um, Antonio Banderas, and I love Penelope Cruz. And I think the thing that was so hard about this movie was that it, it as far as I know, it didn't come into any theater's near me but it came to Chalmette but I just kept like refreshing like every day I would check to see if it was playing at some theater and I would see it at Chalmette at like two times during the day and so I was just so aware of how unable I was to see the movie but eventually it will it will happen Um, but it got a lot of really good attention so I felt like I was understudied yeah like I like his movies are iconic Mm -hmm. in their own way and I have seen so few of them yeah and then this one is like a career retrospective kind of movie right and i feel like i hadn't seen like done my homework yet to like yeah. really appreciate this one so i'm kind of holding off on it but i've heard nothing but good things yeah yeah that i think that's actually a good a good plan 
but I, I just, I just want to get in there with Antonio. Yeah. Yeah. Very excited. What about you, Brittany? Cats. <gasps> oh my God. For sure. I really want to see it because I love Old Possum's book of practical cats, <laughs> which is the book of poetry by T.S. Eliot illustrations by Edward Gorey that um, I freaking love. And the, the cat's musical is based off of, and I love the cat's musical. So I don't see why I wouldn't like this movie. I think I would have loved it, and it probably would have been in my top five if I would have seen it. So it is horrifying, Mm -hmm. and like the CGI is very shoddy and just weird and eerie. And I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, little kitty cat people that are all like you know ganked up in the face. And I think that fits the vibe of the show too, right? The makeup is a little disturbing in the show too. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, very creepy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I was really looking forward to seeing it, and I know like there's been some controversy with it where there was one version released in theaters and then they like re-edited it and then re-released it again and it still looks horrible and it's still (laughs) shitty (laughs) and just yeah i mean that in itself is a reason to go see it that's so funny so i I would love to see it and i imagine it's going to be in theaters for a little while so i'm assuming like britannia is going to pick it up or like one of the smaller theaters at some point and i'll probably see it then I tried to go see it at broad with my friend and we got there and there was a sign on the door said uh, all showings of cats have been canceled due to technical <laughs> difficulties. That's and, about right. And so my buddy went inside and apparently their projector caught on fire oh, no. while they were showing it, <laughs> which is like a perfect, it's fitting. Uh, yeah. perfect disaster. But I know, how did, didn't you see it? Yes, I did see oh cats. And I love, I love cats. I saw cats when I was a kid and I was so confused and I loved every second of it. No. People, you know, complaining about the... I mean, that it, it is cats. Like, cats doesn't make any sense. It's a very loosely, you know, tied together narrative to, like, loop all of these poems together. And I love it. It's, you know, so... It's uncomfortably horny. It is ex- very horny. In the now, stage. the and horny cat? All of them. Yeah. All of them? Yeah, but they're especially all... McCavity. Oh, McCavity. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, obviously McCavity. Right. Big horn dog. Yeah. I would say even Ian McKellen um, as the older cat yeah, gets even, little... like, a, a uncomfortable, like, moment where he's lapping up milk in oh, this, yeah. like, really sensual way in the meows. Yeah. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> there's a lot going on in that movie. Yeah. I was, again, a child when I saw the Broadway show, but I understood at that point that, like, McCavity was very much a sexual creature. Because he's, and like, the like, mysterious Yeah, cat. and I was, I was, like, very, very compelled by McCavity now, as a kid. Now, which cat is played by Jason Derulo? Um, oh, Rum Tum Tugger. Rum-tum Tugger. Rum-tum, oh, he's a course. curious cat from what I remember. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> he is a curious cat. I remember there's a lot of um, more controversy circulating around his crotch. He was mad that cat. they like made his like crotch bump smaller uh, to like make the movie right. less like explicit. Yeah, there's oh, no man. way you can de like weird this movie. Like they, you can't yeah. make it normal. They no. decrotch Jason Derulo, <laughs> but you can't de weird the movie. No. You can't scrub it away. Right. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm very excited to see it. So my goal is to see it sometime during the week. I mean, regardless if I don't catch it in theaters, I'm gonna buy it. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, so that's the, that's the one movie like I really regret not seeing, um, especially before this episode. Yeah. So, yeah. What about you, Brandon? Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm, yeah. Which yeah. Is a lesbian period drama about a, a portrait of a woman being like painted <laughs> and the, uh, the artist and the subject falling in love like in a forbidden way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Celine Sciamma, this like French director did it. I loved her movie Girlhood, which we've done the podcast oh, yeah. before. And also loved uh, a movie she wrote called My Life as a Zucchini, which we've also done on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, she's a great director. It played in New Orleans once, as far as I know, which was at the New Orleans Film Festival. And I skip all of those big movie premieres um, because they're a hassle. And you can go see like two or three like smaller movies and save all the effort. And because of that, I missed out on its only window before it opens wide in February. So now it's in this weird distribution limbo where technically it's a 2019 movie because mm-hmm. it's open in New York and L.A., but... You know, New Orleans won't get to see it till Valentine's Day 2020. Damn it. So if you love it, I mean, are you going to put it on your list next year? Yeah, fuck it. We're in New Orleans. Yes. We're on New Orleans website. Yeah. We'll just go with that as a 2020 release. Absolutely. Also, it does feel wonderful to have that released on Valentine's Day. That's kind of nice, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we'll talk about that movie next year, I'm sure. Whether yeah. or not it's like a favorite, I can't tell. Don't but um, we'll talk about it for sure. That is enough preamble, I think. We have plenty <laughs> of other stuff to get to. Uh, I will say, format-wise, we've updated what we're going to do today a little bit. We're only going to talk about each movie once. Uh, last year, if we had a movie that was on all four of our lists, we each would have like listed it and you know talked it over and over again. I think we're going to try to simplify it a little bit. Hopefully, this is not a total mess, because this is new territory for us. <laughs> I'm excited about it. Okay, good. Me too. Yeah. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Welcome. Sorry about the wait. I'm always here, waiting for children to come and play. But firstly, you must learn the rules. It's time I prepared the attractions. So for the first part, we're going to talk about Outliers, which is movies that was just on one of our lists. A lot of this is going to be me and Brittany. But we did start with James. His number 10 was not on anyone else's list. So kind of in the tradition of this podcast, like best of the year list, James gets to kick it off. Woo! I like this tradition. Yeah. (laughs) What was your number 10 for 2019? Her Smell, which... Stars Elizabeth Moss and probably my favorite female performance of the year. It's a train wreck of a performance, um, but I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. She basically plays this like aging punk. I got shades of like Courtney Love, definitely. But the band itself was more like maybe an L7. The Breeders. Or the Breeders. And it's just kind of this downfall of a rock star. But in a different way than I've seen in other movies where it's usually glamorized in some way, like the drugs and the alcohol and sex. It's like kind of fun. This is not fun. This is like a very hard to watch movie at points because she's just hell on wheels and she's a terrible mother through lots of it. She abuses her bandmates verbally and physically. She's an addict. What I loved besides her performance was the way the movie is structured and it's like five very long extended like one take scenes. And so, you know, it's like her backstage at a show and it's just like this 20 minute scene of her like doing drugs and fighting with her ex and like falling on top of her child. And it's just very sloppy and messy. There's also some like weird occultist stuff. Like she is. Has, oh, like, yeah. A she's into like yeah. voodoo. Her, like, she healer. thinks. Yeah. She has this like voodoo high priest that follows her and it's very like punk rock celebrity yeah, yeah to be into some weird esoteric religious yes. stuff but then the movie like towards the end it shifts and there's a scene where you know she has her like rock bottom and then she goes into like recovery and it's just her at home basically sober and her baby's dad like brings a kid over and sings a ballad for her in this really tender scene and then For the last like long scene, it's this kind of like reunion show thing. And 
there's like a sense of dread in this question of like she's sober but she like they, no one can find her. Is is there mm-hmm. a relapse in the final scene? Which there, there's no like answer to that question. But I, I I fell on a particular side of a yes or no. I don't think that that's really the point. Like to me, it's like not so much like did she do drugs at that reunion show. It's like the question of is she on drugs will follow her forever. So it's like yeah, she's clean and sober now, but eventually she probably will relapse and that kind of hanging over like they kind of tease like she's going to do this suicide thing and i'm glad it didn't go in that direction um that would have been too over the top for me like this feels very true to like addiction and recovery so yeah it's a very hard to watch movie it's not pleasant her performance is not like she's not like the protagonist at all she's the villain throughout but yet just something about her performance, like you still feel for her and you want her to be better for her kid. So it's like this tragic thing, but man, that, that performance, it's just like... It's a whirlwind. It's yeah. a whirlwind. It's like a natural disaster. I And I understand why some people weren't super into it because, again, it's not like fun and it's not easy watching. It's very uncomfortable, but I kind of like films that do that, that take me out of my comfort zone where I'm like... Mm-hmm. I'm enthralled, but I'm also cringing as I'm watching. I'm like, oh, I want this to be over. Like that sense of danger is pervasive throughout this film. And um, that's why I cracked my top 10. I mean, I the- like that perspective of it. It makes me like it more. Yeah. Like after hearing you talk about it in that way, I'm like, yeah, it, I mean, it wasn't horrible. It was good. I really, I really struggled with this movie. I think it was a totally important movie. And I think it would have been an honorable mention for me, but when I was trying to figure out my list, I just couldn't like rationalize putting on a movie that I enjoyed for pretty much zero percent, even though it was <laughs> right. fantastic and she was amazing. I, she was just like a walking gremlin for like seventy-five percent of them. I was just like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. But I think she was, or that movie is really talking about an important like and specific sector of that like punk rock. Um, scene. I, I so it's like I love this movie, but I hate this movie. It's I, an ugly film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. impressive filmmaking. Yeah, in that it does its job, which is making you feel like shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, our next one actually has another musical element. It was Britney's number ten. Yeah. So I had a feeling that was going to be the next one, going with the vibe. Um, but my number ten was the Russian rock musical uh, Leto. Which um, is like a Leto is like a rough translation of like summer, um, and it's spelled like Jared Leto. Yeah, at first, like I saw that, and I was like, "Oh, Jared Leto is a movie about himself." <laughs> Weird, <laughs> right? Thought it was a biopic, and then it was this crazy, like you know, Russian rock musical. I really liked it a lot because it really introduced me to something I had like no idea about, which is the um, Russian rock movement in the early '80s in Leningrad. It talks about the rise of these two very prominent, you know, founding father bands of the Russian rock mu- movement, which is um, Zoo Park and Kino. It's a weird movie in the sense that, like, it's not a biographical pick because, like, there was a lot of controversy when this came out to where, like, um, members of Zoo Park and members of Kino were like, that's totally incorrect. It's invalid. Um, like, the details and everything. But the movie, like, 
wasn't trying to be a biopic. Like there were moments where there were these like breaking the fourth wall uh, moments in the movie where, you know, somebody would look straight at the camera and be like, Hey, this really didn't happen. And they would break out into like musical song or something like that. So I thought that was weird. I really hadn't seen a movie like that where it references like actual bands and actual places. And it things sounds like, that. like um, velvet goldmine. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Yes. It's like glam rock musical. Where it's kind of about Bowie about. and Iggy, but it's not really about them. Yeah. Exactly. Wait, so these are real Russian rock bands in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And this, it's sort of like a meta musical, like about the history of those bands. And how like the movement came like during like the Soviet Union and like how the music scene was. Wait, and is the music like really, like it's their yeah. songs? Yes. Okay, cool. So it's a cool movie. Like the whole thing's in black and white. Mm-hmm. And the musical moments aren't like everyone breaks out into song and dance. They sing in perfect harmony. It's just like the they'll, you know, break out into music. And then these like weird doodles will like go all over the screen and cover their faces. What? And it's really cool. Like the whole that that was awesome. Didn't the director get in trouble? Politically he went to jail. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the director, his name is Kirill Simbrinikov, and he was arrested during the last week of the production of this film for like fraud or something. And I I don't know the details of it, but he works with this theater that gets government money, and he was accused of doing something that he shouldn't have with that money, which was totally incorrect. But this guy is known for criticizing the Russian government. So, like, he is high on, like, Putin's radar. Putin fucking hates him. So um, he was pretty much on house arrest while he was um, completing the film, which was pretty um, badass, I think. So, um, yeah, this is a badass movie. It starts off where there's this, the Leningrad Rock Club, and it's the early 1980s, and this is pretty much, like, the only access that, like, the Soviet Union has to rock music and a lot of like the older generation like looks at rock music as being like too western so they really don't like you know seeing it out there having people listen to it and at these shows that take place the Leningrad Rock Club which Zoo Park is a big the you know the prominent band at this point everyone's like sitting down and if they like bob their heads too hard like the KGB is like policing it so they're like hey stop <laughs> Or if you tap your toes too much, it's like, stop. Like, nobody can You cannot up. enjoy this music. Yeah, it's crazy. So mm. it's just weird seeing this, like, insane, like, rock performance and people just, like, sitting and, like, bobbing their heads, like, slowly. And, like, all the lyrics to the songs that are going to be performed in this rock club have to be approved before they can even perform it. But, like, like the movie doesn't make it seem, like, terrible. Like, it is terrible, but it doesn't, like, it's just... It's a fact of life. It's like, this is what it is, and I liked it a lot. It educated me a lot on um, rock music in the Soviet Union, yeah. which I had I, no fucking All I know about. is, like, pussy riot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next three are all me, and they're all horror movies, so I'll try to go pretty quickly. <laughs> My number 10 for the year was Lose, which is spelled L-U-Z. Mm. I just watched oh, that this morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's an easy one to watch at the end because it is a 70-minute movie, and it's low budget, and it's a genre film. So if you're like cramming in 2019 movies still, like I think this one's a pretty easily digestible one. It is a student film from Germany. Like It was someone's thesis project mm-hmm. for their film school. I mean, all that sounds like pretty like meager. Like It sounds like you would have seen something like this before. 
And it does feel very familiar. It has a like film grain quality to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like old celluloid. It looks like a Euro horror from the 70s, I would say. It is a demonic possession movie. And I think it achieves something that a lot of demonic possession movies try to, which is this like sweaty desperation where someone loses their damn mind and like the supernatural like creeps in on reality. I think this movie like pulls that off in a way that a lot of movies try to but don't. It's got that synthy like throwback score that's mm-hmm. always really fun in these like genre throwbacks. The basic plot is this like cab driver shows up all scratched up at this police station in seemingly the early 80s late 70s. No one says what time frame it is. And she is questioned by the police but doesn't remember exactly what happened because uh, her last cab ride was fatal, but we don't understand exactly what transpired. And they bring in this like ringer guy who is kind of like a um, hypnotherapist to sort of draw out of her uh, what happened. What the cab driver and the cops don't know is that this hypnotherapist has already been possessed by the demon that is trying to get to this cab driver and has already like accosted her a couple times. So he finally has her trapped in this room where he can like really break into her mind. And the movie does this very confusing thing where you watch play out like the police investigation, the original demonic possession where the demon first met this cab driver, the cab ride, and the demon taking over the the hypnotherapist's body. And all four of these like fragmented storylines start to overlap and just reach this climactic, sweaty, demonic possession like fever dream. And I just think it's really impressive considering like how cheaply made it was and the fact that it's like a student film and like just a really like impressive seventy minute genre exercise. I thought the look of it was actually my favorite part. Yeah. Like you say, it was a student film. I don't know what kind of you know camera equipment they had. But it like, looks like it was shot on cellular. It doesn't look like it was like there's a filter Cause you on could, it. Because right. you could see like, I don't know what you call it, but like where the film kind of pops in mm-hmm. certain points. I don't know what the technical term is, but it had that grainy quality. I thought it was like shot very well. I found the plot to be incoherent. Really? Yeah, or just like hard to, like you're talking about, it's very fragmented and there's multiple levels. I think by the end it's pretty clear though. Like, I I can kind of lay it out like she met this demon in like high school uh, at this like boarding school for girls and the demon's been trying to get back to her this whole time. And this event that you're watching is like the fruition of that with flashbacks to the original. Yeah. The thing that's confusing is that actors, as they're possessed by this demon, start playing different people different in pe- their yeah. past. Which is very It's good. definitely fragmented, but I, I, think it, I think it does... Like, the most impressive part to me, I think I've seen that cinematic grain in that 70s throwback done before. What's impressive to me is the writing is so complex and the story is so layered that I was just impressed that I could come up with a clear like A to B storyline by the end. It just takes a while for your brain to like piece it together. I didn't love it in the way you did, but I found it inspirational in that this is like a student film. And it's like most of the time when you see like a student film or a thesis film, and it feels like subpar, you know, like not professional in some way. This didn't really feel like that. Like this felt like a fully realized thing. So like I definitely want the director to keep making movies. I can imagine with like a bigger budget, what what she could do. If, if I had to liken this to anything specific, it would be like when Jalo directors started making supernatural stuff. Yeah. So like Kill Baby Kill and like Suspiria, where it's not technically a Jalo film because it's supernatural, not like a murder mystery, mm-hmm. but there's like, I don't know. It just has that same kind of like over stylized right. 
vibe to it. Yeah. And there's something about like using that kind of celluloid quality that feels really tactile. And I love that, especially in a horror movie. And it's only 70 minutes and yeah. it's on shutter now. So it's easily accessible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is one of those movies that might get lost in this like scramble to watch everything important right. from the last year. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but you know, next Halloween season, when you're looking for like a quick, weird horror film, um, this one gets a lot done in a short amount of time on like a shoestring budget. And I, I really love that kind of filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, my, no- my number nine for the year, another horror film, is called Wounds. <gasps> oh, loved Wounds. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This is set in New Orleans. It's from an Iranian filmmaker. Really? But the uh, source material novel was written by a bartender in New Orleans, an ex-bartender, who uh, worked at the same bar that I did uh, when I worked uptown at, at the pub. It is stars Army Hammer as this like hot guy who is a functioning alcoholic and he is sort of drifting through life and feels like he can charm his way through the fact that he is like sloth. He is like the sin of sloth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what happens is a, a group of college kids from Tulane, you know, these like rich, spoiled brats, leave this cell phone in his bar and he, and he hacks into it and finds disturbing videos on the phone that unlock this like Lovecraftian curse where all the stuff he has in his life, like this like girlfriend he really doesn't pay much attention to and you know this job and this like nice apartment all that starts unraveling so that he starts off the film as like this functioning alcoholic and by the end he is just an alcoholic and like living in filth and doesn't even have a couch to crash on you can like smell him yeah so on one level i like this because it is a actor showcase for Army Hammer. He has these like Nick Cageian freakouts mm-hmm. where he's like rolling around on the street screaming and like taking off his shirt to like show off his body. He's got a nice body. Oh, yeah. he's a beautiful, beautiful man. On the other hand, I just really love, you know, cell phone horror movies. <laughs> it's something you've probably heard me talk about to the point where you're bored of hearing about it. But I really love like evil internet stuff. And then on the third hand, this just touches my heart because it documents a very specific kind of New Orleans alcoholism that Mm -hmm. feels extremely local. And it was sad for me to see on, like, pro critics lists and, like, Letterboxd and uh, Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, this movie has a very terrible reputation and says it's about nothing and it's just about delivering these, like, scary images, which are scary and, like, legitimately creepy. But I think that's undercutting the fact that this is a movie about alcoholism and losing control over... An addiction that you feel like you have a handle on. Yeah. And it feels very familiar to specific real bartenders that I know and like feel familiar with. Yeah. And specific to New Orleans, like growing up here, drinking is like part of the the culture. Mm -hmm. It's part of the scene. And like, yeah, seeing that go from like fun party to like very dark, it's a small, subtle thing that happens over time. But that's like a very real thing to the people that live here Mm -hmm. and that's why it resonated with me i felt like it really was getting at something kind of deeper about like the city and its culture and that's why the stuff with like him going to the fly or him wearing the morgus t-shirt morgus is basically our version of like elvira right yeah that but that rang and like a lot of movies are set new orleans but new orleans is sort of just this Mm -hmm. backdrop this it felt like authentically like about the city. About the city in a very real way. And I could, you know, like you said, it was written by somebody that lived here. And it, so, yeah, it was pulsating with that New Orleans sort of energy, the dark energy of the city. 
that's what I really liked about this. Would this was actually going to be in my honorable mentions? Yeah. And this would have been my number. Actually, this was just eked out of my top ten list. It, it also felt true to a lot of people I've known here, like especially people coming down from Tulane, because I think he he had gone to Tulane and, and he then he dropped about out. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like people who who perceive themselves as having a lot of untapped potential that kind of get like sucked into the whirlpool of um, debauchery and of just idleness. Like it's so easy in New Orleans to get sucked into a hedonistic lifestyle um, and then just kind of like stall out. And rot. Yeah, exactly. And his like downfall in this movie is rot and he's like covered in cockroaches and just like falling apart and he used to be this like handsome charmer yeah and now he's gross yeah <laughs> I think it was just like in his age too where it's like and we've all been like kind of touching on it like yeah it's cool and cute but like once right. you start to get older it becomes really shitty which is kind of the age we're all getting to right now the thing is like we're not hanging out with 20 like his girlfriend is younger she's still in college right. but we all know that guy that's like you're done with college like you oh, don't God. have to keep going to like two lane dive bars right. and that like move on with your life and yeah. like it was really getting at that and there's a lot of people like that here like a lot where they cannot shake fucking Tulane from their ass and like they like hang out with people like you know 20 years younger than them it's, and try to act yeah. like them and it's yeah. weird it's gross it's yeah. gross yeah. Don't go to the boot stop going <laughs> oh yeah. god that is like maybe the grossest place in the I city would... <laughs> ugh I, so other than that, like I did like all the gross wound shit. Yeah, yeah, like it was, it was great. It was gross too. The actual like, horror yeah. stuff does work on its own. I yeah. thought it did. Like I hate like just gaping. Oh god, the um the guy at the bar, his army hammer's friend that got like oh. his face shanked that just like oh, never yeah. fucking mm-hmm. cleaned it up, and they're just like flies in his house and there's like Popeye's cups in the background. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, oh, God. it's uh, such a New Orleans you could, attitude. Like, you could smell this whole fucking movie like the whole yeah. time like that nasty like when the beer's coming from your pores and you're sweating mm-hmm. and then you have some like garbage in your room and you know just some infected fucking wound. It's just so disgusting but lovely. And I actually watched it late at night on the last time we went to the Shamrock and uh, we like <laughs> I drank beers <laughs> At a bar with my buddies and like went home late and watched a movie late at night. And it was like, oh God, this is hitting too close to home. Yeah. Uh, it's not even something I do very often anymore. But yeah. So yeah, that's a very uncomfortable movie. <laughs> and my number eight is actually probably the most uncomfortable movie I saw all year. It's called Violence Voyager. Ah! <laughs> another honorable mention for me. Yeah. That oh. almost was in my top 10. But that's a fucking weird, <laughs> fucked up movie, dude. I am so happy you introduced me to it. it <laughs> I'm glad to hear that because we, we throw this party at my house every New Year's where people are invited to drop by over like 48 hours while we watch like our favorite movies of the year. You know, drop by for snacks and drinks and stuff and we're just going to run a bunch of stuff on the TV. And my tastes have become more and more vulgar and like <laughs> sexualized over the years. So like sometimes I feel like I'm subjecting people to shit that like they didn't ask for. Wait, did you play Violence Voyager? I did. <laughs> Oh, God. And, yeah, that, that made some people uncomfortable, and I get it, because it does make you feel uncomfortable. It, it's a Japanese movie, and it's not quite animation. It's these, like, cutout pieces, almost operated like puppets. Mm-hmm. So it's these, like, 2D cutouts, and they're very intricately painted. It's not, like, half-assed, but yeah. the animation quality is a little crude. Um, and what the puppetry allows, instead of, like, traditional 2D animation, is for him to incorporate smokes and firecrackers and, like, basically semen-looking liquids that ooze out of things. 
the plot is pretty much a choose your own adventure novel where this like couple of young boys in Japan find this like mountainside amusement park that is obviously like cursed, but they go inside anyway and they get trapped in there and experimented on by the evil man who runs it. I'm trying to go through this very quickly. <laughs> it's a very strange setup. Um, and it turns into this like Cronenbergian horror show where the man strips these children naked. It's, a, it's as uncomfortable as it sounds. There's a lot of genitals in this movie. Yeah. Um, and mutates them into these like television shaped beasts with like raw muscles exposed to the world and their anuses turning these like cloacas that are just leaking like seminal fluid Whoa. Yeah. Uh, it's so fucking gross and uncomfortable <laughs> and it's narrated as if it's this like saturday morning television show from the 60s <laughs> oh that's so it's funny and it's got good jokes and there's like a lot of awkward pauses oh. uh, in a way like an adult swim show will usually play out for humor but it reaches this like Cronenbergian mania um, that really just disturbs the fuck out of you <laughs> and I think scarred me for life and I still saw it twice uh, and oh was just really into it um, what, what did y'all think being subjected to this movie I love this movie yeah <laughs> I also thought the puppets were so they were just so beautifully painted and drawn, I mean, there were like these intricate, and there were times when the puppets would be painted on both sides, so the puppet would be like turned one way and then would flip around. Anyway, I. It it's was, not half assed. No, it was fantastic. And it was totally bizarre. And, and again, like there were times when the characters' mouths would be like agape for no reason, and there would just be like <laughs> five seconds of silence, and. The it it is does kind of follow this like fairy tale trajectory, and there's this wizened old man and these animal helpers that like help the children. I, I I just thought it was fantastic. It was truly the strangest thing that I've seen all year. And uh, like, even though they were these hand painted puppets, the nudity felt very real. I've never seen so it's many like tiny child penises in a row and erect child penises yeah. yeah yeah it was very that's, that's what threw me off it was like there's no sexual scenarios really but, it, but you still feel like almost like henry darger-esque like is this person who made this a sex criminal right yeah but that's how it there was this underlying current of yeah. like child molestation you know like before they even go to the theme park they go visit with the monkey man or what's it lucky monkey lucky monkey and there's like just this undercurrent of like this guy molests kids and it's never part of the text but you definitely no. feel that the yeah. entire time the entire time yeah. and that's what makes it made it so uncomfortable for me yeah. is like the saturday morning cartoon thing with the undercurrent of like these kids are getting like violated and then the liquid that they extrude from their hands and the, from their like Ugh. sphincters i mean it's not semen, but it it's is. Semen. Yeah, it is. I mean, you see it, and you're like, "Yep, that's what it is." And so, yeah, it just really toes this strange line that could, and it's a movie that could never have been made like as a live action feature. No, no, no. Yeah, it feels like someone put this together in their basement in a hurry, like so the FBI doesn't shut right. them down immediately, or whatever the Japanese yeah. equivalent of the I FBI is. I can't have is. these puppets in my basement for too long. I, it was getting at some dark undercurrent of like adolescent sexuality that I don't really want to ever explore again. But it, again, like I appreciate it so much because like I appreciate weird art and confrontational mm -hmm. strength, you know, 
strange shit. And this is like one of the strangest movies I've seen in the past like few years. I can't really compare it to anything else. So yeah, yeah. Hats yeah. off to you for like recommending. Yeah. This would also <laughs> fuck you for recommending this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Brittany, um, hopefully yeah. you can lighten the mood yeah. a little bit. Uh, God, I hope so. You're number seven. <laughs> Your number six and your number five were all outliers. I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> so my number seven is Greta. Oh, um, it's so good. And Brandon actually like recommended it to me because he knows I love like psycho bitties. Psycho bitties. <laughs> so um, yeah, and this year we had two psycho bitty style movies. We had Ma mm-hmm. and uh, Greta come out in theaters. And Lifetime had Psycho Granny. And Psycho Granny! Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was Ultimate such Psycho a good movie. Which I feel like Lifetime is where those movies usually live. So to see Greta and Ma like on the big screen in a proper theater is, is kind of a treat because these usually live on <laughs> Lifetime Channel. So I watched Greta on an airplane. Whoa. <laughs> and um, I was like surrounded. I had like two kids on each side of me. Um, so it was very interesting. I'm like, God, I hope they're watching my screen right now. Um, but yeah, Greta is a psycho bitty movie and it reminded me a lot of one of my favorite films of all time, Notes on a Scandal with Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett. And it's essentially you have an older woman who becomes obsessed with a younger woman and you can't really tell if it's sexual or not, but you think it is, but nothing's really saying it is, but you like know what it is. <laughs> um, so we have... Isabelle Huppert. Yes, as Greta. And she is fabulous, right? Like, she's been in, like, some creepy roles where, you know, in a lot of thrillers and things of that sort. But, like, I've never seen her in something like this (laughs) to where she's almost like a predator. And Chloe Grace Moretz is her obsession. So what happens is Greta leaves her purse on the subway and Chloe Grace Moretz is this young, you know, cutesy little waitress in New York City. And she picks up this purse and is like, oh, I should probably return it to the owner. And then she eventually finds where Greta lives. And then, you know, she just lost her mother. So she develops this kind of bond with Greta where it's almost like Greta's kind of taking on that motherly role for her. And then it becomes creepier as time progresses. But early on in the movie, she finds out Greta's a creep. Stay away from her. It's not like you get halfway or even more towards this film and you're like, whoa, she's weird. You need to like, not hang out with this woman. It's pretty early on that she finds out she needs to stay away from her. And then Greta keeps stalking her. Like She'll go to her place of business and like make sure that's her waitress. And you know she'll mm-hmm. stand outside her the restaurant she works at and just watch her until in the she rain. like in the rain <laughs> and watch her until she comes out and it gets to the point where she's like you know she calls the police and she makes restraining orders and like nothing is like there's no escaping this woman and it's really weird to be like how can like you know a woman like a 70 year old woman be so fucking terrifying like yeah call the cops put her ass in jail it doesn't work like that so you know, I think that's what made it really creepy for me. And then the film just goes batshit crazy uh, towards, like, the end where she actually captures Greta. And then you find out, like, no, she captures Greta. She captures Chloe Grace Moretz. And you kind of find out, like, why she's obsessed with her and what her motive is. And it's super disgusting and amazing. Yeah. I fucking loved it. I liked it a lot. I, personally, I liked Ma more. 
Yeah. Because uh, these like psycho biddies are all about like the hag. These hag exploitation films are all about like the uh, <laughs> the hag and like their performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This fellow pair really does like go uh. towards the end. She does this little dance with her feet that is like super fun. Yes. But Octavia Spencer and Ma for me was like more of a showcase. I agree. Okay. I just think that like Isabelle Huppert in here is like. She reminded me more of, like, the classic Betty. Like, mm-hmm. I felt like she was more in, like, the Betty Davis range. Um, and it's weird because it's it's a film that takes place in modern times. James is, like, laughing at us, like, connoisseurs yeah. of black no, expectation. I love like, it. You need no, no. to make, like, a Betty taxonomy. Yeah, yeah. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it felt like a movie that it, it's modern times, but it, it felt like I was... In like you know 1950s Paris sometimes mm-hmm. yeah um, and I love that so I, I really liked how it it kept like this old world style with this like modern time New York City background I thought it was really freaking cool so it becomes super creepy because I think it's so realistic and I have a lot of like older women friends too so I'm like oh my god could I ever be gretted <laughs> you know and I mean I wouldn't hate it um, but it, it's just it's good it was just so good and I don't really want to give away the ending but it deals with a fucking like fucked up toy box behind a piano yeah. and it's, it's it's sick it is so sick it gets so fucking dark what was your number six my numero six is <laughs> Velvet Buzzsaw yes oh, I like yeah. I sort of forgot about that movie yeah. but I really liked it I forgot it. that it came out this year I like awesome. mo- any movie that criticizes like high art and mm-hmm. art critics <laughs> art like world. I'm about yes. it and this movie got criticism by being like you're criticizing how pretentious the art world is but you're being a pretentious film which I didn't get that like I hated how people hated this movie so much that. no so Velvet Buzzsaw is like a satire of like the you know fancy schmancy high art world mm-hmm. and it's got this like insane star-studded cast and like all kinds of shit going on throughout the whole film but it's so like it is super funny it's very scary. I was scared at certain moments. And it has Tony Collette, who's like my homegirl, like mm-hmm. my favorite actress of all time. Well, it has, for me, it has Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal, Hall. who's like my boy. And he coming into his own as a total weirdo lately. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, think, I don't know if it started with Nightcrawler or when that trajectory started, mm-hmm. but. I've never yeah. seen Nightcrawler, but the same director of Nightcrawler directed Velvet yeah, Buzzsaw. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, oh, does he have like a thing for Jake Gyllenhaal or something? I love that. I feel like Oakjo was his weirdest role to date, which is a lot because he's <laughs> been doing a lot of weird shit in the last few years. So I have not been a Jake Gyllenhaal fan. Not like a super fan. Like I'm not like, oh my God, he's in a movie. I have to go see it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't hate him. I don't like him. I'm. It's like, whatever. He's cool. Yeah. Whatever. Well, this movie, like, totally, like, made me love him. Like, seeing him as, like... So he's this bisexual art critic. And he is... I can't even fucking explain him. He's just, like, hilarious. He really hams it up in this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. He is so funny. So basically, Morph, Jake Gyllenhaal, is this art critic. And he breaks up with his boyfriend and he starts to kind of get into the sexual relationship with um, Zowie Ashton. And it's kind of like at this point, she isn't on his level. You know, he's like fancy schmancy art critic and she's just kind of dabbling her toes into this new world and trying to move up in it. So she's like the only sweet and really innocent character that we do have. And she works for um, Rene Russo who is like this horrible like super mean boss but she's was in like a 
a punk band mm-hmm. in her day called Velvet Buzzsaw, hence the name of the movie. Well, someone at Zoe Ashton's apartment passes away and she like creeps in and finds like this art that just like changes like her life. Everyone that looks at this art like gets stopped in their footsteps and they're like in a, you know, they're hypnotized by it. So by her discovering this, she gets like pushed up even further in um, her her career ladder. And then you kind of start to see her change into someone who isn't as sweet as she was initially. Um, So there's like that fun, like character development with her and um, these paintings and the artists, his, um, his last name I think is like Dietz or something like that. He was had a very traumatic childhood and it's like his paintings are haunted. They're painted with real blood. And after he dies, like I, I'm assuming it kind of feels like he's haunting the paintings. Well, a lot of people that come into contact with him like die in these very crazy ways. Like um, a painting literally takes over someone's body, like the paints and like these neon colors like take over them, which is like my favorite death scene. I think that came out this year. It's so fucking good. Someone there's like a <laughs> there's an orb. Oh, the orb is my the favorite part. The orb of the is fabulous. Oh, yeah. Um, so it isn't a Dietz painting, but it is a install, an artist installation sculpture in the art museum that everyone works at, and it's this big orb, and you stick your hand in it in one of the orifices, and you feel something. Well, someone sticks their hand in it and like dies, and like blood just is fucking all over this orb, and then like little kids come in the next day. They think it's part of the art that there's blood everywhere. <laughs> They're like, like stepping in the blood and yeah. shit. That was, that was some of my favorite. So <laughs> funny. <laughs> so yeah, it's just like lots of like this haunted painting kind of just starts to terrorize everyone that comes in contact with it. Parts of Velvet Buzzsaw remind me of a movie that I think might come up. Oh, later. it is. Yeah. I think this is the uh, second best killer object movie of the year. Right. You know what I'm talking about. But like, I love that. Just basic, like a killer dress. Deathbed, the Mm -hmm. bed that eats. Yeah. A a bed that eats. A painting that kills. like A killer elevator. I love that. Like there's something so simplistic and wonderful about that idea. Like shit you see every day that can just take you out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that, that was like some of my favorite. Like that with the satire of like the art critic world yeah, is what worked the most for yeah. me in Velvet Budsaw. I also like I think there is a tradition of like commodifying suffering in the art world. And like the like the more pain an artist goes through, the more meaningful the art is. And the more and, valuable it becomes. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you see that with like like the kind of exploitative photography too that people do of like people suffering in other countries for instance it becomes this like like a symbol of another world to them but i love that that suffering like the artist never intended for his paintings to be seen by anybody else and then the suffering that these people are profiting off of that doesn't belong to them kind of seeps into the other art that has been created and it's it's just killing them off and I would say yeah. that there's another film from this year that'll come up much later about like harvesting beautiful objects from other countries and other people's mm-hmm. suffering and yeah. then turning that into profit. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely another common theme from this Whoa. year too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, Velvet Buzzsaw, fucking awesome. I loved it. Yes. Well, what was fun. your number five? So number five is uh, Mr. America, which is probably the funniest movie I've seen all year. Um, it stars uh, comedian Tim Heidecker. 
So what happened was, like, you know, maybe earlier in the year, like, Tim Heidecker started posting shit on his Instagram where he's like, I'm running for DA. I'm fucking draining the swamp. I'm trapping all the rats. (laughs) And I was like, shit, it looks like he's fucking running for (laughs) district attorney in San Bernardino County. So I, like, legit thought he was really running for it because there was no, like, any information out there that a movie was being filmed. So what happened was, like, very abruptly there was just like a release saying, oh, by the way, there's a movie called Mr. America that's going to be coming out in select theaters within the next week. And I'm like, holy shit, like all those little bits that he was like throwing out in his social media were all clips from a movie that was about to come out. So it's a mockumentary about like um, politicians and these like, it's very Trumpy, but in a funny way. It's an extension of the on cinema at the cinema canon as well. Yes. Yes, on cinema, Decker, Decker and the trial. <laughs> Which in the trial, he was on trial for negligent homicide for selling poisoned vape juice. <laughs> to kids at um, which, at festivals. <laughs> which is kind of... From the headlines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so all these like crazy storylines from this on cinema universe all kind of come together for Mr. America, which is... It's just a beautiful, like, thank you to, like, everyone who, like, keeps up with this shit. And even if you don't keep up with this shit, it's just, like, fun for you to watch regardless. And it's picking fun, particularly at, like, populist politicians who, like, say these, like, big sort of grand, um, Mm -hmm. vague statements and these, like, word salads (laughs) and then get... You know, elected based on nothing, pretty much. Boisterous right. personalities. Just be like, I'm no... just like you. And yeah. yeah, like, well, I don't, I do not want anyone like me to rule the country. <laughs> um, so, well, what happens in Mr. America is there's a, a, a camera crew, like, sort of documenting Tim Heidecker's journey while he's running for district attorney of San Bernardino County. And the incumbent is um, Vincent Rossetti who was the prosecutor in the trial. So Tim was on trial for murder because of the tainted vape juice and Vincent Rossetti prosecuted him. So he's like trying to take out this aggression on him, even though like Vincent Rossetti is like, who are you again? (laughs) And um, his big campaign slogan is like, we've got a rat problem. And he makes these signs that say, we've got a rat problem. And in very small font on the bottom, it says, like, Tim Heidecker for district attorney. And then he goes to all these businesses and is like, hey, can I put my sign in your window? <laughs> so all these, like, you know, like, ch- you know, Chinese restaurants and, like, convenience stores and buffets and stuff. It's very Nathan like, for you, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's like, we have a rat problem. And then he keeps talking, like, his, like... He's got, like, no clear plan or anything. He just keeps saying, like, we got to set a trap. we got to set a rat trap. We're setting a rat trap tonight. What the rat trap is, we don't fucking know for the most part. And he is, is just, like, the most unsuccessful campaign. Like, he doesn't even have enough signatures to be on the ballot. <laughs> and he orders, like, you know, five hats from Amazon with his name on it to pass out to, like, to promote himself. And I mean, it's just the funniest shit ever. I laughed so hard and it played for like one night at the broad and I caught it and I'm like so thankful for it. But this was by far the funniest movie that I've watched in a long time. And especially this year, it's very funny. So the last outlier is my number four for the year. It's another movie that was playing abroad for, I think one week's time. The only other theater it played in new Orleans was in the new Orleans museum of art. And in most cities that it did play in, I think there's only eight total, it played in museums and not proper theaters. Uh, It is the Solange 
music video, When I Get Home. It is over 40 minutes long, so it's feature length. It is a visual album in the style of like Dirty Computer, which I praised last year, Mm -hmm. and Lemonade from two or three years ago now. Yeah. I'm not a huge Solange fan. I don't know that much about her. My adventurousness in music in general has been slacking more and more as I've gotten more into like finding new movies. Mm -hmm. Like music I'm pretty lackadaisical about. So I went into this not really expecting much other than the fact that I love these feature-length music videos as an art form and I want to support them playing in proper theatrical environments. Seeing this in the theater blew my fucking mind. I think it's one of the best like visual album things I've ever seen. It was great to see it in a proper format. I'd call it a acid western sci-fi musical. It doesn't have a plot the way the Dirty Computer does, but what it is is it's a portrait of black people in Houston and black culture in Houston mm-hmm. and shows all different sides of that, like past, present, and future. Some of it is just men riding around on these horses at like the outskirts of town in these like suburbs. Some of it is beautiful fashion shoots downtown, like people wearing this like like almost early 80s fashion in these like uh have you ever been to downtown Houston? Like their architecture is very brutalist eighties and has like all these yes. like weird angles and stuff mm-hmm. and they're Reminds playing me it a up. lot of the big business movie. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> like the, the vibe I get from It's almost like the buildings Houston. are wearing like shoulder pads. You <laughs> yes, know? yes. Uh, and then there's a lot of futuristic, almost Barbarella stuff where like mm-hmm. these big tittied strippers are carrying these like spaceships in the desert and dragging them in these like high yes. heels. It is all over the place, but I think it amounts to this like portrait of Houston in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though she's like this adopted New Orleans artist, um, she is looking back to her hometown in this sort of like abstracted science fiction way with this really weird R&B record of the same name. It's also called When Mm -hmm. I Get Home. And it's a movie you can watch right now on YouTube, so it's easily accessible. I loved seeing it at a proper theater, but I think you can watch it at home and get about the same experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has this one moment that's like my favorite thing that happened in a movie all year. After all this like weird high fashion photography and this like beautiful, you know, cinema, like sights and sounds in this like expertly crafted, precise way, there's this segment where she's practicing dancing at home and recording herself with the laptop webcam. Mm-hmm. And there's this camera movement where she adjusts the back panel of the laptop Mm -hmm. up and down to like show herself in the thing and the way the camera swings back and forth it's this style of cinematography we see in our daily lives that we don't see in cinema it's like this hinged camera Mm -hmm. like sort of Mm -hmm. oscillating back and forth and i don't know that's the same like thrill i get from like unfriended and like sick house like movies that are filmed on smartphones and laptops (laughs) where like there's this throwaway (laughs) disposable kind of like camera movement that we use every day when we're mm-hmm. taking selfies or doing right. FaceTime that we don't see in cinema. And I loved seeing that in a movie theater. Like that, I, I wanted to like jump out of my seat, like cheer <laughs> when I, I don't think that would affect most people the same way. Cause I obsess yeah. over that kind of thing. But I don't know if you have any love for Solange or if you don't, this is just like a beautiful cinematic experience that is like pure sights and sounds for 40 something minutes with these big sci-fi ideas and i loved it nice i think i i um at your new year's shindig i um saw like the first half of it and i really yeah yeah, most of it it was very good and i like how she did it as like a you know an homage to her roots where i think it would have been really easy for her to have done that in new orleans 
You know what I mean? Because I think New Orleans might be, like, more fashionable and hip mm-hmm. than Houston is. But I love how she stayed true to, like, who she was and didn't just, like, pull, like, New Orleans out of her ass. And, like, she actually did Houston. And Which I, is something I her sister that. got, you know, yeah. knocked for for doing with Formation. Right. Some, like, right. New Orleans porn kind of thing. But. Yeah. So I think, I thought that was really genuine and authentic. And you can feel that through the the movie, too. So, yeah. I liked I liked what I saw. I would... I, I'll watch the rest of it. I like that. I have not seen this, but I like that idea too, because I think of Houston as not really having a strong identity. It's this right. really like spread out kind of sprawling. And a lot of the time taken in that city is driving from place to place. So I think, I mean, I think it's really interesting to create these visual portraits of cities that aren't kind of like already cataloged in the way that like New Orleans is or New York or LA. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- I mean, and that I love space westerns. So yeah. That sounds awesome. fantastic. There's some parts that look like Hodorowski and then there's some parts that look like somebody dancing in their bedroom. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's a very all encompassing kind of movie. Mr. Blanc, I know who you are. I read your profile in the New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85-year-old father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. And now for our, like, overlap, like, consensus picks, movies that were on multiple lists. Um, we're going to start with a movie that was on Hannah's list at number nine and on James's at number eight. Uh, what, what was your number eight, James? Being a lie. <laughs> it was a marriage story. Uh, um, good Adam Driver impersonation there. God, I love Adam Driver's face. Mm-hmm. I just want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so it's interesting, so interesting like a, right? Like a sexy alien. Um, I love Noah Baumbach, too, like... Mostly he's like a screenwriter, um, Squid and the Whale, which I rewatched oh. recently. Mm-hmm. I've always been attracted to like his dialogue, but this was this felt like a more, I guess, mature work. And also coming from a family that has dealt with a lot of divorce, this film really resonated with me and how the process of divorce can kind of drive a wedge between people that in other circumstances could get along and, you know, make it work. But anyway... It's um, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, and they're going through a divorce. And initially, you know, they're like, we don't want to have lawyers involved. You know, we can do this on our own. And she hires a lawyer, then he hires a lawyer. And it's this back and forth, and it becomes really hostile. And it kind of tears their family apart. And their child, their son is like stuck in the middle. And um, it's heartbreaking and it's funny and it's really sweet and it has like a couple of my favorite scenes of 2019 i think it's like a superb breakup story essentially and i think it really illustrates how hard it can be for parents when their child kind of arbitrarily prefers another parent I mean because when you're a kid it's like you just go through phases where you're more into mom or you're more into dad Mm -hmm. but 
during a divorce, like those phases that the kid may or may not even remember when they grow up can be really, really painful. And it's really hard for Adam Driver when he's trying to spend, he has to fly to LA, he wants to spend time with his son, but he's stressed out about the divorce, obviously. And his kid is like, hey, can I go back to mom's? Like, I don't really want to be here. And especially when they're trying to decide who should get custody of the kid. So there's this observer who's coming to both of the households to watch how the parents interact with the child. And Adam Driver just totally fucks it up. Like he he's like irritated with the kid. And then he accidentally like slits his own arm open with a party trick with a knife. And he's just like trying to keep cool. And they're like blood is pouring out of his arm. And the observer's like, oh, are you right? He's like, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then he passes out. It's just like realizing that you you aren't maybe the best parent for your child or maybe you can't give them as good of an experience as the the other parent does so you know and I've seen that play out personally too like picking sides and then growing up and realizing how painful that can be anyway so I love this movie it made me cry many times um the scene where Adam Driver is um singing the the company song being alive is just like heart-wrenching and then when he's going through the letter of appreciation that Scarlett Johansson has written for him at the end, it's just like so painful that you can love somebody so much and create a life with them that you love so much and it just has to kind of dissolve. It sounds rough. Yeah, <laughs> it's a toughie. There's a scene too where they, they're arguing and it starts like every kind of argument in a relationship. It starts about kind of minor stuff and they're, sort of like hospitable and then it very quickly escalates to something almost violent Mm -hmm. but then there's a moment where like the violence is like kind of crescendoed and she's like holding him and you know they're at a point of like acceptance it's like a beautiful scene like i mean it's a beautiful heartbreaking movie like i don't know like i'm a sucker for these kind of movies like movies about divorce about heartache about longing like that's my jam uh, <laughs> oh I, love, I love <laughs> I love this movie um, it, it was just filled with life and sorrow and uh, did either of y'all see this one I it's on Netflix didn't it's, see it I didn't even know it there. existed it's great there's too many movies yeah there's <laughs> so many no but it sounds great mm-hmm. I'll, I'll probably have to be in a mood to watch it I think <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah. and in so, a good place when I want to go through something yeah yes when I'm in the feelings Speaking of going through something, Britney's number eight and my number seven <laughs> was Climax. Woo! Oh, man. Oh. Gaspar Noe. I'm usually interested in what Gaspar Noe's doing, mm-hmm. but I'm usually, like, rolling my eyes at him. Yeah. Like, I like how he's a provocateur, but I'm usually, like, disgusted by what he puts on the screen. And this time, I was disgusted, too. This movie's, like, very <laughs> icky, but yes, it is. it's a fun party. It's a fun party full of dancing and drugs and little... Hints of incest. You and I bond over incest movies for some reason. It's so weird. I hate it, but it's true. It's absolutely true. And there's more death drops in this movie than like oh Paris God. is Burning yes. uh, or RuPaul's Drag Race. It, it is a dance movie, first and foremost. This like group of dancers mm-hmm. in the French uh, isolated like blizzard. It's like almost like they're like a little middle school or something. Yeah. But no one can get to them and they're stuck at this party, which is my favorite one of my favorite genre templates is the party out of bounds where like you're at a terrible party and you can't leave even though it's getting worse and worse. Um, like exterminating angel almost or like uh, yeah. discreet 
Charm of the Bourgeois. Or, or Mother, even. Mother, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're at this party, they're snowed in, and someone spiked the sangria with a insane amount of LSD, uh, we think. And over the course of the night, the dancing gets weirder. The conversations become more inane and frustrating. You're like, why are you talking like that? And <laughs> it turns into this like horrific, violent, sexual mania. Gaspar Noe is showing off in all the most obnoxious ways possible. The camera like tilts and twirls around the room. This is a French film. And fucking proud of it. I <laughs> love that. Yeah. I love it. And all like the weird credits like coming in at oh, like, yeah. bizarre times. Yeah. It makes you feel like you've taken something. Like you've yes. been dosed. Yes. The structure is off and it's showy and it's obnoxious. And it's basically the kind of like over stylized smut I've been like more and more attracted to. <laughs> Uh, I saw Climax on a big screen at Elmwood. It was not a you know well-attended screening. <laughs> but I saw it like at a Megaplex, big and loud, this like French and fucking proud of it smut uh, that was just like nudity and violence and child murder and just like sexual <laughs> drugged up mayhem. I, I appreciate that it exists in this world that's becoming more sexless and like corporatized. In general, you're not a fan of Gaspar. No, Noe, he's, right? he's annoying. And he usually uses rape for shock mm-hmm. uh, value. I, and I feel like that's what soured so many people on him was irreversible. And yeah, I hate the that infamous movie. Ra- And I hate it too. But I will say like Enter the Void, which came out a few years ago, is a fucking masterpiece in the same way that you're describing. And I believe that is the one movie from him I haven't seen yet. Maybe we should do a podcast episode on it just because I would love to revisit it. It's so good. I'm more on board with him now than I was a year ago because of Climax. What did did you think of Climax? It's high on your list as well. I loved it. It kind of felt like a mix between like a big music video and a movie. Yeah. Because it's the same type of beat playing over and over and over again where... It kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, Girl Walk All Day. I'm so into that, like, melding of genres. Right. Yeah. And it it was kind of, um, even though this movie is just, like, there's a lot of insanity going on. I think just the fact that there's a lot of dancing and music and not a lot of dialogue made it seem peaceful. (laughs) In a weird way. (laughs) Where I, you know, like, you can just sit there and just, like, absorb it all in. And I don't know. Like, I think the first time I watched it, I didn't really move that much. (laughs) I was, like, sitting down. I was, like... Whoa, whoa, wow, cool. <laughs> um, and then I watched it again at your New Year's thing, and I was like, God, this movie is very good. <laughs> and another uncomfortable movie to play for, like, mixed company. Yeah, yeah. yeah so like, oh, like, I think there were times where like, we forgot that, you know, someone, you know, punches their stomach out until they, get, you know, lose their child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. My pregnant friend was there, oh, too. No. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, God. She, but, she liked it, though. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> But it's just, it's so, it's so cool. And it's so entertaining. Like, there's not, like, one part where I just kind of felt like I was slumping or, like, whatever. Like, I want to see something else. And I got very excited. Like, a lot of it takes place on, like, the first floor, like, main dance floor. And I would get so pumped when they would, like, leave the dance floor and go upstairs. Or, like, go to, like, where the rooms are. Yeah. So I would look forward to those, like, little moments a lot. (laughs) It was, like, a treat. Yeah, it was like a good like breath of fresh air until you get to the back rooms and worse shit is happening yeah. back there. <laughs> yes. This woman's head is on fire. Yeah. The yeah. head on fire. And it's just this mix of like, you know, who's dead at the end? Like, we don't fucking know all the way. Like, who who lived? Who died? And where are the other people? Like, you know, you're trying to figure out where everyone is at the end of this movie and what their, what their state is. And it's hard. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. It is gross. It takes a lot of like trigger warnings and being okay with certain taboos <laughs> yes. to like get through it. 
But, you know, if, if that kind of provocation interests you and he's sort of let you down before, this is the one that worked for me. <laughs> Try it out. Yeah. Yes. Well, the next one is another movie that's on Netflix, and it is James's and Hannah's number seven. Whoa. What was your number seven, Hannah? Oh, Dolomite is my name. Oh, my God. I love this movie. Um, actually, though, I think you should talk about it. Because Why? Because, just because you've connected it to other movies. Actually, to connect it to Brandon, me and Brandon went through a, a time period where we were watching a lot of black exploitation films. And specifically Dolomite films. Human Tornado. That was the Petey first Wheatstraw, the Devil's Son-in-Law. Movie yes, that, I think you made you like when we were doing our movie exchange at work. Was like, by the way, here's the thing: Human Tornado. Look into it. I love the Human Tornado. <laughs> yeah. There's a scene in that movie where he literally fucks a house down. Yes, <laughs> he's having sex so good that the house collapses on I him. I love it, and I don't have like a lot of comedies. I think this is the only comedy on my top ten. Oh, it's a comedy. It yeah. is, okay. and it's just. Filled with like joy and Aww. like, there's so many like <laughs> fun cameos. And the central message too is like being an artist and like making it happen. And like, Rudy Ray Moore is uh, tracking his um, rise to fame from being kind of like an old, washed up semi comedian, like singer. He has a couple of like old pop hits to like release making and releasing the first dolomite movie so he is inspired by these um jokes that he hears from a homeless guy that comes into his record shop about this character dolomite and he is this really raunchy kind of gross sexy funny humor he creates a character dolomite and then he goes on a comedy tour he gets increasingly famous kind of against the odds like nobody is willing to bet on him and then he just becomes more and more popular and then he decides to open um, a studio and make a movie he just has these like these starstruck aspirations that seem totally impossible and he like just kind of wraps the people up and gets them together and makes it happen and this is from the um, writers who wrote Ed Wood, the Tim Burton movie. Yeah. It's kind of a similar trajectory of these, like, outsider artists with this passion for right. this movie no one else believes in. And then, like, it's kind of like a cultural hit. Yeah. Even though it's not, like, going to make all the money in the world. It, it, it has, like, cult status. Yeah. It's like a celebration of this tiny, weird thing. Right. And the thing that I really loved about it is, you know, there's so many movies about a genius who is unappreciated um, and then he he just puts in the time and finally he's recognized and people realize you know he's a he's an artist he's a genius and he, he needs to be listened to and he his voice was important all along and Dolomite is like he's not a genius he's just totally dedicated to creating like to seeing his vision through and in the end, he's, you know, they're rolling up to the movie premiere and he says, you know, he's saying to his crew or they're reading all of these reviews, which are pretty bad. It's not well received. And he says, you know what? No matter what happens, we made the movie and that's what's important. Like we succeeded. And then he gets out of the car and there is just this huge crowd of people waiting to see his movie. So it's the thing that I love about it is his his aspirations are validated not because he's some unappreciated genius, but because he's a human being with a creative vision that, that was important to people. Like every single person has something inside of them that is worthy of being, you know, professed to the world. I mean, well, maybe, you know, certain ideologies 
a minute. But well, and also, <laughs> also I love that he was so mediocre. Exactly. He's like not in shape. He's not a good actor. Oh, his karate choreography is really karate is <laughs> awful. He's not a good singer. He's not talented in any way, but he just wants to make it. Mm-hmm. And he's going to like bust his ass to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And that to me is like true inspiration. Like it's the same. Um, it was that documentary in the 90s American movie. Mm-hmm. You know, that one's sad, though. It's sad because they're drunk and not doing what they should be doing. Like they're <laughs> self-destructive and Dolomite, um, you know, actually went up there and got the work done where they're like kind of dragging their feet and like. But, but you know what? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's the same, that spirit of, like, filmmaking. Matt Farley, Ed yeah. Wood. Yeah. DIY people like, who are, like, outside of right. the official means of production. I don't have the actual talent, but it's not really about talent. It's just about, like, the will. Are you going to make it happen or not? Mm-hmm. And that's what Dolomite is in this movie. And also, like, Eddie Murphy gives a great performance as Dolomite. Mm-hmm. And... There's like a whole, there's Snoop Dogg, there's T.I., there's like a whole cast of like interesting people around him too. And like the movie is like very funny and it's like super entertaining and it makes you feel good. Yeah. And it was really the only comedy I saw this year that like made me laugh and also like gave a fire to like my spirit mm-hmm. on some level too. So, and because we like kind of grew up watching dolomite movies too it like it just hit me on like all all these levels well the next movie has already been discussed at length in this podcast it was britney's number nine and my number five it's jordan peele's us uh which james and i <laughs> yelled at each other about at length uh, i don't i'm just gonna like we don't need to get back into it so us gonna make it on your top 10 i'm assuming it actually would have been in my top five worst movies of worst okay. i know i'm not Okay. I'm not going to no even... No problem. And honestly, I feel like I've sang its praises a lot. I think it's a right. really good nightmare reflection of class differences in yes. this country. Yes. And like the pain that is generated when we live our daily lives and we're disconnected from that hurt. And this movie reinterprets that through this like surreal lens in a way that I find fascinating. And I enjoyed it even more than Get Out, which I, I know is the more iconic film uh, from Jordan Peele. But this one feels like an entire film set in the sunken place. Like, it has that surreal, like, submersion in this, like, you know, dream space. And that's the kind of stuff I'm more attracted to in general. And it's a lot messier than Get Out, which is, like, you know, very precise and, like, everything falls into place. This one is, like, a a movie I do not tire of thinking about. I think about Us all the time. Uh, (laughs) And I, I think it looks great and it has, like, really interesting way of going about its, like, class divide themes. In a year where a lot of movies were about class, I think, and exploitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did it make your list, Brittany? I just thought it was like a really smart, like well-put-together um, horror movie. And like you, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I mean, I've stopped thinking about it since, in that sense. But like for the first couple of months, I was like, whoa, whoa. Like it would just like stay in my head and there were like different parts of it. I would just like mentally explore. But I liked it a lot. It was, um, I loved the surprise elements of it. Like there were moments where like when you're halfway through the movie, I was like, all right, it's over, right? And then in this whole new world just unleashes and i love that kind of shit where i didn't expect it to and i didn't expect the movie to go in the direction that it did i love that so hannah never got to weigh in on this movie <laughs> what, what did you think of us I, I liked us i think i'm basically somewhere in the middle like i just have these little hang-ups 
plot-wise that I can't get over, but I thought it was one of the most visually interesting movies I've seen, and I do think that he was trying to tackle like a, a huge topic, and he did it very elegantly. And I loved the hands across America metaphor. I loved the like whitewashing of the Vision Quest um, underground trenchway. Uh, I thought Lupita Nyong'o was fantastic. In two roles. Yeah. 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 Tim Heidecker and uh, also... um, Elizabeth Moss. Yeah, we already talked about both of them earlier today. And yeah, yeah, they both did a really good job in this. And also Winston Duke as the dad, which is like a peak movie dad. (laughs) Corny dad. Yes. Yeah, we've already talked about the movie a lot. (laughs) So much. Uh, I really like it. And most people have already seen it. So I don't think that we need to get back Mm -mm. into it that much. Yeah. Um, The next movie is another Netflix film. That also was on James's list and Hannah's list. Uh, James had it at number nine, and Hannah had it at number three. Oh. What was your number three for the year? The Irishman. Oh. I felt kind of lame putting this so high on my <laughs> list, but I love this movie, and I did. I love mob movies. I didn't actually expect to like this movie as much as I did, but it just really like hit me unexpectedly. So it's. Robert De Niro, he's going on this road trip with his old friend, um, who's played by Joe Pesci, and then the movie is following, and directed by Martin Scorsese, the movie is following um, his movement from kind of like a, a low-level worker into the, um, into the mob, basically. And it's... I think three and a half hours yeah. long. Wow. And I, I thought it would take like multiple i would have to take multiple breaks to watch it but it really flew by i've heard people say like oh yeah i've been watching the irishman for a week it's like how like people watch like four episodes of a television show in a row they can't sit down for this one movie yeah Yeah. no i thought that it it was totally compelling and just just that in itself is a feat i think but i just i thought it was like this really beautiful and tragic story of a a guy that kind of he like can't connect to his family he's doing what he thinks he has to do to protect him or to protect them but he's totally um deluded and i think it also um it looks at the things that people do kind of mindlessly or the the things that people do because not because they think it's what's right but because that's the environment that they've kind of been sucked into you know he he was in the military he had to shoot people for whatever reason um, and he's kind of soaked that into his um, his work in the mob and another thing that I loved about it was it, it was kind of like there are these fairy tale threads underneath it like there's this one part where Joe Pesci is he's basically delivering weapons for people to take for an inv- the Bay of Pigs the invasion into Cuba and Joe Pesci says, okay, you go along this road, and then when you get to this road, you're going to get into this truck, and when you take this truck, talk to this man, and he's going to drive you to another place. And it just reminded me of these, like, the 1001 Nights, like the, the Arabian Night stories, where you were given these instructions that you didn't understand, and they were going to deliver you somewhere better than where you were. It's almost like a video game. Yeah, exactly. And it, and the way that they speak to each other, I mean, obviously, they couldn't explicitly say, like, hey, I need you to go, like, kill Joey Fantone over in the, like, 
in the pasta shop. So they, you know, the way that they talk about themselves is that they paint houses. You know, so they're using all of these allusions in this metaphorical language, which was just like really beautiful ways to describe these horrific things that they're doing. It's like they're kind of, you know, they're using that language to lie to themselves about who they are and to kind of hide from the law in a more pragmatic way. It just follows these men as they're dying for mob-related reasons, you know, and it shows, it'll pop up a character and it says, like, oh, shot in the alley in, you know, like, 1974 or whatever. Like, it gives their death date. So all of these men are marked no matter what they do. Like, no matter what they do, they're all going to end up... Just because of the kind of lives they're living. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And at the end of the movie, Robert De Niro is kind of on his deathbed. He's in an old folks' home. He's totally alienated himself from his family because he's never built any real connection with his daughters. And he's like, he leaves the door open, which is what Al Pacino, his his politician friend, used to do. And it's like, he's still afraid of death coming for him, but he can't escape it. You know, even if he were to die 20 years later or 20 years earlier, um, it's just... It's just coming for you. So that was like, (laughs) you know, all over the place kind of. I mean, it's a huge movie. And there are things that I didn't even, you know, get into his relationship with Al Pacino. And, you know, that pivotal moment at the end, obviously, that the movie is building to. I think, too, like this is a Martin Scorsese film. Yeah. And like Scorsese is one of, if not the greatest directors that are living on this planet right now. But he's also... 70 something years old mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he'll be dead soon yeah and he's swinging for the fences in his old age like and, yeah. between this <laughs> and he, silence like he's going for big broad projects but this one specifically it seems like kind of meta in the sense of like you know he's known for these mobster movies and he's known for like kind of glamorizing the mob lifestyle and it seems in a way like what he's saying like this Robert De Niro character, the Irishman, like he lives through all the violence. Like he actually makes it past. He doesn't die in some alley getting shot by some gangster. He doesn't get assassinated, whatever. He actually lives to old age, but he's still alone. Eventually, like we all have to die and we have to face like the kind of life that we've lived. And I don't, it feels like Scorsese saying that about his own like his own films like okay Mm -hmm. i've glamorized like these mobsters but you know what like we all have to meet our maker and it's like him kind of coming to terms with his own death in some weird way is how i've read into it maybe that's over reading but like the last like 30 minutes of the irishman is like a gut punch and like super powerful in like our own mortality and even these like gangsters that we put up on like the screen and in our films and our media, like these are just men that will like die one day and time moves on. And that to me is like a very powerful thing for a director like Scorsese to say, like in his old age. Well, the next movie was another James and Hannah collaboration. <laughs> what? Yes. Oh, uh, number six on Hannah's list and number five on James's. <gasps> what was your number five, James? Wait, this wasn't in y'all's top ten? Not at all. Really? I liked it. It's fun. But no, I, I, I didn't feel that like strongly about it, no. Wait, Brittany, did you see Knives Out? I didn't. Okay. Oh. I know, and I Tony Collette, 
Oh, yeah, really. Like, yeah, I know. Craig, it's like, a, oh my Michael God. Shannon. Delicious. My, yeah. Michael Shannon trying to force feed someone cookies and milk is one of my favorite Ugh. cinematic moments of the movie yeah. year. But no, okay. I, I didn't love the movie the so, way a lot of people do. I probably would have loved it. So I'm going to add that to my list as long as, you know, Cats. Yes, I wish I would have seen yes. Cats yeah. and Knives Out as well. Knives Out should be. <laughs> okay. I, this It was the most actual fun yeah. I had in the theater all year. I liked it. it was, is it still good. in the theaters? <laughs> <laughs> or did it leave theaters? That's fine. <laughs> yeah, it was a blast. What? I, I don't want to like introduce the movie for you, but it's a familiar mm-hmm. genre template. Yes. And it has a lot of actors I like being fun in it, um, having a good time and wearing like great costumes. And yeah. uh, it has you know broad themes that mm-hmm. are like political in nature and smart in that way. And it just all adds up to a movie I thought was a good, solid, like mid-budget Hollywood film that we don't see often enough anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, I liked it in that respect, but I don't find it very special in the way that a lot of people do. I don't think it's that remarkable. It was a good time. <laughs> yeah, it it's so a good fun. movie. No, it was just fun. And that's Dude. why this like best of the year, best of the yeah. decade shit is so stupid because you watch stuff <laughs> so late in December and you're like, wow, I really like this. This is good. But is it best of the year good? Which to me, when I walked away from the movie, I didn't personally connect with it in any like mm-hmm. particularly personal way. Mm-hmm. And also... Yeah, I have this like lens where I'm like looking at it like does it stand up to this like yeah. other titles, which is the worst fucking light to look at any movie in. So, I don't know. I thought the political aspect actually brought it home. When it, it's me. about it's about immigration and racism yeah. and like privilege. Whoa, yeah, and wow. entitlement. Yeah. I was not expecting that. Yeah, I did not know that. So it have that like undercurrent and just it, it was a blast. Yeah, like I just like had so much fun and maybe this is another part of it too. Is like maybe the way, like the environment we watch the movies in, like is part of it too. Like we saw it in a packed theater mm-hmm. at Britannia, and everybody was like in on the jokes, and like everyone was laughing at the same time, and we we were like a collective film goer, like communal experience. Yeah, right. And it like, and it was like right around like Thanksgiving, and it just felt like. Like, man, I'm connecting with, like, all these people. Like, we're all in on this joke together. Yeah. And it was just a blast. I don't know. And, like, Daniel Craig's performance, I thought, was, like, a blast, uh, too. He was the best part of the movie. Yeah, he was He was fantastic. So I'll say, we, we did see this in a packed theater. I saw this again with my family at Christmas, and I loved it just as much as I did before. And I just love, like, whodunit Agatha Christie mm. movies. And this felt... It's like I felt like I was in two different time periods. I was in the Agatha Christie moment, and then Daniel Craig was like calling the main character on her cell phone and like driving, and like the ch- the chase scene that just went totally awry. Like they're in a Prius, and she's going like like sixty miles an hour. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm just a sucker for those movies, and Daniel Craig hamming it up as this like deep South Georgia detective was totally doing his stick from logan lucky which it was very funny in that movie too (laughs) yeah uh yeah awesome and ts stick and then even christopher Plummer in his small moments i believe he's still alive yeah he's doing it not for long in this movie okay uh yeah i i don't even mean to like shit on this movie i just think it's it's a good solid movie Mm -hmm. that just didn't call out to me personally 
And that does actually, I think, imply the kind of movie it is because it is a movie with broad appeal. Like mm-hmm. you said, you watched it with your family. Yeah. You're not going to sit down and watch Violence Voyager yeah. with your mom, you know? That's true. Like, it's, it is the kind <laughs> of movie. Oh, I would love to watch that, though. <laughs> oh, my God. But oh, you can man. share this movie with a broad yeah. range of people in your life and, you know, have a communal experience mm-hmm. with it and not have people alienated. And I feel like in the past, like, our our top movies usually are, like, kind of genre movies that don't necessarily appeal to a wide range of moviegoers Mm -hmm. and that's what was sort of refreshing about this movie for me was to have a diverse crowd all kind of on the same page and all sort of enjoying it in the same way like that was part of the appeal usually our top five is like kind of maybe weird like genre picks or like not part of the mainstream and it was good to see like a very mainstream movie that can like make 14 year old girl and like a 70 year old man like laugh in the same way. And there's something, there's an art to that Mm -hmm. that I feel like has to be respected and like admired. So the next movie is another James and Hannah joint. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, It was Hannah's number eight and James's number three. What was your number three of the year? Man, we keep, well, I'm surprised. James is getting so surprised. (laughs) Wait, (laughs) No one else had this on. This is list? in my top twenty, but not my top ten. Yeah, maybe I missed. Really? It. Yeah, okay. I liked it a lot. It's good. Beach bum, yeah. Harmony Corinne. I saw it didn't make my top. Why? It's I don't so, know. Oh, I didn't I connect this. with it. I connected with it because I love to like smoke weed and drink PBR. <laughs> I want. I want to be a moon dog. And it's oh. showing. You know the, I mean? It's showing the worst. Like bottom of the barrel scum uh, personality. It made me very sad. Yeah, it's a. It's it a, is a sad. It, and yeah, it is a good movie though. I will say that. It I would very good. I would liken it to Wounds almost in that like Moon Dog is a mm. evil force of like destructive nature. He's not evil though. See, okay, mm. I disagree with you because Moon Dog, he's a beautiful human being. We are fighting over oh, this we, man named Moon Dog. No, he is. Well, he's a Florida poet. And a stoner, <laughs> right? And he and he just sort of drifts through his poet fame. It's yeah. such an absurd concept. <laughs> uh, and he hangs out with Jimmy Buffett and Snoop Dogg. He is yes. such a he's the big parrot head, and I know a lot of people like that. And I but think it's that particular key... like ideology in life. Yeah, that it's sort of criticizing while also celebrating it. In I a think way the key too. thing is that poem he reads at the boardwalk where he has an audience and he says, I want to destroy you all and I will eat this world. And I'm not, I'm not exact quoting it. Cause this movie came out like fucking forever ago in the summer. Um, and I saw in the movie theater on 420, and I was the only person laughing. <laughs> uh, it was very funny, but I think he's an evil figure and his hedonism is destructive and destroys lives and I found that fascinating, especially in the larger Harmony Corinne cast of characters where, like, Harmony Corinne's movies, kind of the same as Gaspar Noe. They're very provocative for mm-hmm. provocation's sake. And you watch these sort of figures do these, like, nihilistically empty hedonistic acts and just sort of drift through life. This, I think, is the only difference is it's filtered through, like, an Adam Sandler comedy template. Like, it feels like a 90s comedy while still having that same dark love. nihilism. But wait, you like Spring Breakers, though. I like both of these movies. This is in my top 20 movies of the year. It's not I don't like it. I, I like it a lot. <laughs> it's not, it's not my top favorites. Why did it make your top 10, Hannah? I just feel like Isla Fisher in this movie. It's oh, like yeah. I recognize how awful his behavior is. And it, 
if I knew him in real life, I would probably like despise him, but I just can't. He's just like so, and it doesn't make any sense to me, but he is so charming. Like I was charmed all the way through the movie and I hate that I was charmed. That is his character, right? Like he keeps fucking up in these spectacular yeah. destructive ways and everyone's like, oh, that's just Moondog. Right, he's just doing his thing. <laughs> and Matthew McConaughey is so good at playing those characters right. too. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think I think it really actually wouldn't have worked if it had been somebody else. Right. And that's what I value about it, and that's why I, I want to liken it to the Adam Sandler characters because mm-hmm. in those movies you're laughing at this like man boy who never grew up and mm-hmm. acts in this like self serving behavior that hurts other people, and you laugh like oh right. that goofball. Uh, I wish I could like be a pure id monster like that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie does have a step back where it's like showing the exact same thing, but it's like, God, this is ugly right. and mean. And yeah, it's still funny, but it's it's got a dark undertone to it. Mm-hmm. But he does have cute moments. Like right. when he's going down on Isla Fisher and she's like on the phone, re- like yeah. drinking white wine. Like <laughs> he does have his uses. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I do think he's like a gross, evil character. And I found that part fascinating. Yeah. I disagree. I don't categorize him as gross and evil. Well, he's gross, but he's not evil. His like heart is good. I don't think his intentions matter. His his actions have bad consequences. Well, I, and maybe that's the distinction. It's like he might have a good heart, but what he does is objectively bad. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what doesn't his matter. intentions are. But that's kind of the like tragedy of that sort of character. It is that Matthew McConaughey sort of character taken to its like its limit and it's showing it for what it is. Yeah. And that, that's sort of I liked the like celebration of it while also like saying like, hey, this is like not cool either. But the movie itself feels like a Jimmy Buffett cruise ship. Yeah, it's like, it does. We're just like hanging out. We're chilling. We're having We're smoking weed with Snoop Dogg. in paradise. <laughs> Purple Christmas. And like Spring Breakers was like the same thing sort of, but much darker. This movie feels like more fun. It's more light. We're having a good time. And I like the complexity of it. I mean, I like that it doesn't totally vindicate Moondog. I mean, and everybody, I, I get the sense that everybody around him kind of pities him a little bit. But they also, like, those kinds of people do give you this, like, unbridled sense of joy at the same time. So there is, like, value in that lifestyle. And I think it's more fun to see that in a movie than it is to see it in real life. And so I enjoy the vicarious Yeah, you can't get hurt by Moondog. Yeah, exactly. He's not not going to crash your wedding. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we're now getting into movies that are on three people's lists, which is exactly one movie. Oh, (laughs) I know what it is. It's in fabric. Yes. It was Hannah's number 10, Britney's number three, and my number two. Wow. So this is very high on my list. Yes. This is a movie about a killer dress. Uh, it's by Peter Strickland, who did The Duke of Burgundy, which I think mm-hmm. is one of the best movies of the past decade. Movie, yeah. yeah. And this movie is a lot funnier, I think, than that one. The humor is more overt. It is in an evil department store in London, uh, where these, like, basically sexed-up witches are selling <laughs> off, like, post-Christmas sales, like, getting rid of, like, high-fashion merchandise. Mm-hmm. And the number one item that they're trying to get rid of is this killer dress. It works almost like a horror anthology. You watch this dress go yeah. to about three different people in these like 
harsh segments. Like you, you can just tell mm-hmm. like one story's over. We're moving to the next one. And the dress is a killer in the sort of abstract way where like bad things happen to these people mm-hmm. and they're like cursed. And it's also a killer in a very direct way in that it flies around. It uh, smothers your people. Ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's hilarious. I got shushed at our Overlook Film Fest screening where a woman leaned over to me and told me that I was ruining her experience because <laughs> this is not a comedy. Which I think is dead wrong. I think this yeah. is a comedy. Yes. It just it has a very peculiar sense of humor. It takes a minute to latch on yeah. to. And I think she definitely realized that at, maybe like sooner than this, but at least when the baby comes out wearing a red dress and is like giving, giving the, the finger. finger to all of the, the orderly. Like there's just no question. So like at the end of the movie, did you approach this woman and be like, now what? No, I had like crippling social anxiety about being called out. <laughs> like, I didn't realize my enjoyment was, like, ruining someone else's experience. <laughs> like, I'm ruining her life. Yeah, so, like, I, you know, it was, like, kind of, like, ha-ha, laughing for the rest yeah. of it. And this actually shot up further up my list when I got to watch it by myself later. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't feel like I was ruining someone else's experience. Because <laughs> I didn't, I, I am not a confrontation. Yeah. I like yelling at James, that's safe. But, uh, you know, right. getting Wait. shushed by, like, a stranger was, like, a, a, oh, a terrifying Not a comedy. Yeah. That was, it didn't oh, feel wow. good. Man, it but was so uncalled for. I think that does speak to, like, it not being for everyone and, like, the humor being <laughs> yes. very peculiar. Yeah. And I, what I like most about it is, you know, it is an over-the-top, like, Velvet Buzzsaw-style movie about, like, a killer object. And it's yep. very silly. But it also is shot lovingly like a 70s Euro horror. Beautiful. Um, yeah, it's a gorgeous object yeah. and a deeply silly thing. Yeah. And it's also super horny. Like, <laughs> everyone in this movie is a fetishist, whether it's for nylons or for, like, just feeling yourself. It's a little horny mm-hmm. dress, Or for cunnilingus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The dresses gets into its own sexual yeah, scenarios. absolutely. It's yeah. a little bit of a voyeur. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, it, it touched all of my, like, pleasure zones <laughs> if it just felt like a blast from the past almost but with like a smarter modern twist i really mm-hmm. really love this fucking movie so much every little thing like all the little details were super enjoyable like the fact that they chose to like make this a red dress like in the way that mm-hmm. this vibrant red dress looked in all these like you know backgrounds and i love the, the witchy store staff oh I my god they're the, this weird cult of like retail and as a, a past retail worker, I'm like, yes, this is a fucking thing. <laughs> They're uh, mannequin fetishists. They the, fuck mannequins after the store closes. Yes, the, the the mannequin with like the bleeding vagina and all that was just like insane. I loved it so much. And then the um, what is that called? Like the little underground elevator. Dumbwaiter. Dumbwaiter. That was my favorite. How she would crawl like um, you know the store clerk would take her. Her wig off. She looks exactly like Sasha Valor when her wig's off. So, yes. <laughs> just like Sa- Sasha Valor. And then she would just like get in the fetal position in the dumbwaiter and just go down into God knows where hell. I love that And so it's much. funny and creepy at the same time. Yeah. Honestly, if I thought about it, this movie might be even higher on my list. Like, it just tickled me to the core that I didn't know existed. Like... <laughs> The whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, is this really existing? Because I've wanted this movie for so long, and I had no idea. There was a movie that was on all four of our lists, but not any of our number ones. Oh, wow. And that was Parasite. Oh, yes. No number ones. It was number six on my list. 
number four on Britney's, number four on James's, and number four on Hannah's. <laughs> it's, Synergy. it's such a number four. Yeah. Apparently. Big number four, yeah. <laughs> Big four energy. This is the movie we talked about on the Us episode, so we've already t- discussed it at length. Hannah has not been able to weigh in on it. What is Parasite and why do you love it? Uh, So Parasite is a movie about a family of South Koreans. They're living in kind of the slums of South Korea and they one by one kind of infiltrate this upper class family and replace their help, basically. Um, So they move up a level in in income um and then the movie kind of takes a shift in the middle where they discover an underground tunnel where the previous help are living and then there's kind of a fight between those those two groups to you know maintain their place in the house and then it devolves in a very violent um encounter at the very end of the movie i thought it was a really fun look at class division and in a way that I haven't really seen before the wealthy family is like pretty ignorant but not necessarily ill-intentioned they're just kind of like I mean they dislike the help in a very general way but not even in a way that they're really aware of Um, they also fetishize the the help especially in a particular scene where the the wife and the husband are kind of like getting each other off on the idea of having like cheap panties and doing drugs together. And I think it crystallized in a really beautiful way how your ignorance can like be totally detrimental and hurtful to people in in ways that you, you can't imagine and how hard it is to even build mm-hmm. that awareness and how it can ultimately lead to implosion which is why we paired it with us because that theme is shared between them and they also have this like vertical yeah the thing subterranean where, like, yeah the class divide is so literal mm-hmm. where like the lower class lives physically lower and the upper class right. lives like at the top of the hill yeah and then shit rolls downhill literally in the yeah. film what, yes. what, what did you like about it Brittany? i liked how it was like a you know a film that is obviously about class but like hannah was kind of like saying um you don't ever feel like the rich people are the bad guys. Like, they are, but, like, it's never, like, blatant, like, you're like, oh, these are nice rich people, but they're not likable still. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, you know, like, I get that they're wealthy and this is just, like, how they are, but are they trying to be mean? I kept, like, having that, like, weird struggle, like, internally. But yeah, I, and I did like how it, um, like at the beginning, it started off as like this kooky, like, well, we're going to take all the places of, these, <laughs> of the help of this family mm-hmm. and we're going to show those guys. Like it was just goofy and kind of funny. And then like all of a sudden it just becomes like a fucking literal shit fest, bat shit crazy stuff starts to happen. I love that. I love whenever like a film like basically makes like a, just a complete turn mm-hmm. um, and goes into something else and gets a little darker. I love that. Well, and that goes to what I liked about it, which was the tonal shift. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a couple <laughs> other movies on my top 10 where they do this thing. That's so hard to pull off where you're doing multiple tones at once in a film where it's like, Oh, it's a comedy. Wait, now it's a thriller horror thing. And like parasite did this really well where in the first half of the film, you feel like you're watching one thing mm-hmm. and then you're like, oh, shit, wait, I know I'm watching something mm-hmm. else. That feels super hard to pull off. Like, and I admire filmmakers that can do that. I think what I really admired 
about this movie was like, like honestly, like how funny it was. Like it's not a comedy in any traditional sense. Yet I laughed probably more than any. It has kind of like an old fashioned like farce element to it, where yeah. like yeah. there's a lot of going on, and people have these secret identities and like trying to keep these lies up in the air. And then yeah. in a traditional farce sense. All of it comes crashing violently and like a big blow up at the end. There's another movie we'll talk about a little later with our number ones that I think does the same thing. Where I just really like that like setup. Like it's set up almost like a traditional comedy and like that everything is very separate and covered in farce. And then when the truth comes out, it's in this big violent clash mm-hmm. um, in this like one centralized location. Oh, yeah. that, that's a pretty ca- classic comical, like even like Shakespeare's style classic like farce setup. Right. And it is, like and it is hard funny. to pull off though. Yeah, for sure. It's an intricately staged film. Another thing that I thought was interesting about Parasite is like we kind of all fell in line in that it's like a number four or a three. It's not a number one in that it's like objectively a great film, but it's not subjectively personal to like any of us to where like that's where I felt like the critics fell too. were like it's not the number one movie of the year. Oh, I disagree with that. It's on a lot of lists like number one of the year it's it's showing up in best of the decade list like oh, more wow. so than any other really? 2019 mm-hmm. movie I, to me it feels like one of those movies where like we all agree like this is a great film yet for me personally it doesn't crack that like number one slot and I, I i don't know why that is like there's something about it that is like it can't move to like the upper echelon i think for the thing is that it doesn't need your help like it doesn't need the recommendation and honestly, this is my favorite part of the, about the movie is that it's a weird, like, dark, comedic genre film that is like, yep. made good box office and has been, yeah. like, slowly expanding. It's still in theaters in Chalmette right now. Like, it's still expanding its theatrical distribution over the past few months. Um, whereas, like, our first collective favorite movie of the year when we first did this in 2014 was Snowpiercer from the same director. Mm-hmm. And that's another weird-ass genre movie that few people saw and a lot of people made fun of. Whereas this one is more tightly controlled and less goofy uh and it's like winning a large audience over it doesn't need our help it's just crazy (laughs) yeah yeah, true it's like it's a i can't think of the last time that like i was in a movie theater that was packed for a film that had like subtitles right either yeah i was just like this is crazy and like the like everyone fucking loved it Mm -hmm. so much and i'm like and it's a south korean film and i mean you don't really see that a lot and like you know our theaters around town so i thought that was really cool yeah i'm used to going to a half empty theater liked, for that yeah, yeah and everyone liked it like people are talking about it, like i'm like oh i didn't even know you like watch those kinds of movies like how do you know what parasite is it's it, it's cool that's what i want to celebrate is the fact that a movie like this can do good business like yeah it yeah. just needs the proper like promotional machine which started with it wanting the palm d'Or can and then like getting all these critical accolades on top of it Bid our father, the sea king, rise from the depths full, foul in his fury. Black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with punch and slime. To choke ye, engorging your organs till ye turn blue and bloated with bilge and brine and can scream no more. So now it is time for our number one films of the year and... Interestingly enough, all four of us had different picks for the best film of 2019. That's so crazy. It surprised me as well. Let's start with Britney. Okay. It was my number three film of the year. Really? But it was your number one. It's <laughs> Knife plus Heart 
knife in heart or knife in the heart or knife and heart. So I've heard it like said three different ways. I'm going to say knife and heart. It's a queer movie that is also a Jayo. Jalo. Jalo. Shit. <laughs> Jalo. I, I still can't get it right. Jalo. I love Jalo films, even mm-hmm. though I can't fucking pronounce the word. But I love how this movie like takes like a traditional Jalo and like puts it into a universe that is made up of just like LGBTQ people. And it's it's awesome because most of them, it's like, you know, a, a male killer hunting women. And they're, they're mm-hmm. very, it's very sexualized and all this all this stuff and this it's it's a sexy movie in that sense of being like a jalo but it's not like a sex driven film well i don't know if i'd agree with that (laughs) it's like a i mean so the film is basically about a woman who's played by vanessa parody and she's a big director in the french um, 1970s gay porn scene so yes it's a (laughs) lot of sexiness in it but i feel like the motive behind the murders isn't like sexually driven it doesn't feel like it to me it is about like overcoming abuse is like kind of the ultimate motivation for the killer but you are talking about a movie that is set during 70s paris gay culture where there is a lot of explicit fucking um, a lot of people, these people are fucking for money uh, to yeah. get by in porn and in prostitution. But yeah, I, I think sex is a large part of it. Yes. Now, this is from the same production company and distribution company called Altered Innocence. Yes. Which also produced The Wild Boys from last year. Oh. And Wild Boys. the director of The Wild Boys stars in this as the cinematographer of the gay porn. I think those movies are linked. The Wild Boys is more explicit in its like sexuality. Yes. This one is set on gay porn sets, but it's not like unsimulated sex on screen. I guess maybe that's why yeah. I like, didn't pick up. I guess, it is a very sexual film, but like not in that sense. Like you're saying, like it felt like I was like, oh, I'm like watching someone do their job. It's more like the, R- <laughs> the R-rated version, not the NC-17 version. Yes. Which because it. it has gay content, it probably would get NC-17 anyway because the MPAA is fucking miserable. But yeah. yeah, I mean, the sort of gimmick of the movie is that the woman is shooting these gay pornos and her actors keep dying uh, and getting murdered by this like serial killer. And then she makes a movie where she is the serial killer who's killing these people. So she feels this like guilt for this like homicidal. Homicidal is the <laughs> pun, pun title. It's awesome. And then yeah, the mystery of who the killer is and these like psychic visions she keeps having of his motivations all comes to a head at this gay porno theater at the end. Yes, yes. Which I'm like, I still feel like you know I've watched this movie twice and like the ending still like I'm still trying to kind of comprehend the meaning behind it like is it punishment for potentially her exploiting something yeah she's exploiting someone else's pain for art right. and for commerce and they strike back at her but i don't right. even think she knows that's what she's exactly inter- yeah. it's it's, so it's cool. a little muddled yeah <laughs> muddled but gorgeous it, like it reminded me a lot of like the neon demon and like blood and black lace with some awesome gay porn. I would it's describe awesome. it as a Dario Argento's cruising. Yeah, oh, you're right. That's <laughs> the way to describe it. So with this movie, um, the killer I think is awesome. Like the the um, the mysterious. You know, normally it would be like you know your leather gloved killer with a hat, and you know you can't really see his face. Well, it's like a gimp mask and this horrible, horrible wig. Afro wig. That is like, it looks like um, like an Albert Einstein wig from a Halloween shop that was dyed black. 
And then the weapon of choice is a switchblade dildo. So it's literally like a dildo and then like I, a button is pushed and then a switchblade just comes out of the tip. Oh. I had no choice but to love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Just from that murder weapon. Oh, but it, it's so crazy. And like the, the murders are insane. Like literally he'll like, you know, he stabs someone to death via like their asshole. Yeah. Um, or he's getting a blowjob on the dildo and like and just, pushes the switchblade. Uh, pushes it through. Yeah. So the the deaths are very intense and is very creative. Like I'm like, who thinks of this shit? Is like the whole time I'm watching this, I'm like, who thought of this? This is fucking awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I love it, and I think it's I've never seen a film like it, and I think that's why I put it as number one. It's just it's unique and it's very standalone and like altered innocence. They they don't really have a lot of movies out there. No, but each one is like fucking awesome. And they're putting out weird DIY gay content, which is hard to come by on mm-hmm. like a right. regular distribution. So I just think it's like definitely yeah, like it's the probably the best movie I've seen. It is the best movie I've seen this year, and it's the one that, like, I feel, like, strongly about saying that it is, like, my favorite movie that came out this year. I think that what I value about it is that there are some gay movies, and more than ever, maybe, like, that are reaching the mainstream. Mm -hmm. But as we go over time, it still feels like we're stuck in this, like, coming out story or, like, miserableism or, like, someone is persecuted for being gay. And this and Wild Boys, to me, feel fresh in that they're extremely explicitly queer yeah but they've moved on from that like 90s like woe is me queer misery drama and have reached this other you know (laughs) it's like a weird like utopia universe where it's like people are gay and no one gives a shit yeah i wish this wasn't special i wish there were 10 movies a year that are gay genre films and i could just pick my favorite one Mm -hmm. but it's not like that this is like a special object right i don't even think there's really a straight character in this film i mean there's one that i think is more so by curious than straight not for long not for long (laughs) yeah so I, I like that too, where it's like kind of you put it through that lens where you're like most films, it's like a, a completely like every character is straight and you might have like one gay character or two mm-hmm. gay characters. And this is just all fucking gay right. characters and you don't even think about it. Yeah. And then in those movies, it's like the entire identity of that character is that they are the gay character. And that's it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And if everyone's gay, that's not special. Right. You have to have other things going right. on. That's why yeah. it's so fucking cool. So yes, fucking knife and heart. So the next is Hannah's number one, which was James's number two. <laughs> uh, so that is uh, The Lighthouse, directed by Robert Eggers, starring Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson as two lighthouse keepers. Um, Willem Dafoe is this old grizzled light- lighthouse keeper, and uh, Robert Pattinson has just, this is his first time, he's kind of a vagrant wandering around to different jobs. Um, so they're there for four weeks, uh, ostensibly, and the island kind of like starts to penetrate their psyche. Eventually the four weeks comes and because of uh, Robert Pattinson's inability to listen to seafaring superstition, they're trapped there and then their relationship, they kind of come together as, as their tenure at the island prolongs, but then their their bond kind of breaks down. Um, and There's they, almost like a persona-ish moment where yeah, you're like, are they exa- the same person? Yeah. And then the movie yeah. scrambles that up where it's like hard to like, right. you cannot pinpoint a clear trajectory there. Like, yeah. The movie fucks with you, your sense of like bearings, I think. Right. And that's actually exactly what I said during, like, and especially like you find out that Willem Dafoe's character is named Thomas and um, Robert Pattinson says he has this other name, and then you find out his name is also Tom. So they're both Toms. 
in different stages of their lives. Um, and but I said during the movie, like it's kind of like a seafaring swashbuckling persona. Yeah. And I I kind of like that. Like it's a very masculine movie. There's like a lot of semen. There's a lot of like jerking off. That's to Robert specialty this year's jerking off. Yeah. Odd locations. And he's he's doing a good job. A lot of like Willem Dafoe just wandering around farting and smelling bad. Um, but I think the thing that I really loved about it well first of all you can't really tell how much of it is literal and how much is a is some kind of hallucination of either character and it feels like this descent into insanity pushed by some kind of guilt or some like listlessness not having a place in the world or being kind of pushed to the boundaries in order to survive and there are these kind of there are these superstitious threads that weave into the movie. For instance, there is a bird that keeps bothering Robert Pattinson. Uh, Willem Dafoe says it's bad luck to kill a seabird because it's the the soul of old sailors. Robert Pattinson kills the seabird and then the weather goes to shit and they're trapped on the island. There's also this, um, the mermaid lore. So there are these mermaids that are kind of transfixing Robert Pattinson and and Willem Dafoe is talking about how his old crewmate went insane because he was obsessed with the mermaids and the light in the lighthouse. So, and there are even like some allusions to Icarus, some like other Greek mythology, like the the light in the lighthouse is maybe the light of Eros. So it, it's this really kind of interesting masculine mindscape that I just found to be really compelling. Um, it's shot beautifully. I'm also a sucker for like the four by five um, oh, it's a tight, aspect ratio. Yeah, it's a tight frame. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's just gorgeous. So, it was weird to see on the big screen too, just because it's uh, this huge canvas with this like yeah. really <laughs> tight squared off like aspect ratio. Yeah, and I thought they're really the only two characters in the movie. Briefly, there's a mermaid and um, visions of this man that Robert Pattinson let die at another job, but Willem Dafoe just like totally melts into this role of this like grizzled lighthouse obsessed um seafaring old man and then robert pattinson is just slowly building an intensity in this manic energy i just thought they were fantastic together um so yeah i i love this movie it was totally unlike anything else i saw and um i i love movies that kind of challenge my own perception and also thread the mythological in with like day-to-day this hard scrabbled living wow (laughs) no no i agree with everything you said and i think on a on a tactile level just like their faces like Mm -hmm. robert pattinson and willem dafoe their face they have such hard lines yeah Defoe is fascinating to look at. Yeah, just look at like bug eyes angular anything yeah let's just look at him in a certain light and like it's beautiful like those two actors their faces speak volumes mm-hmm. they don't have to say anything they have a look that like all the like great actors of yesteryear like they had that where they didn't no dialogue necessary just yeah. look at the face and they worked that throughout the movie and yeah it is about like i don't want to say like toxic mas- masculinity but it's about like Traditional masculinity. Male male bonding. Yeah. And these guys are bonding over... They're getting fucking wasted. (laughs) Right? They're getting Mm -hmm. drunk in this lighthouse. They also almost kiss and dance together. Yeah. Right. And then homoerotic 
with male bonding, there's a homoerotic undertone always. When guys are like slapping each other in the ass with towels, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or they're wrestling in the locker room. Come on, there's it's it's a dominance thing, but it's also an erotic thing at the same right. time. There's an erotic yeah. undertone, and like Lighthouse gets at that, and it's about a lot of things, but about nothing concretely. Yeah. Either and like. I like the like uh, Lovecraftian angle too, where like the lighthouse itself is this like divine yeah, like experience exactly. that they can't you know fully attain, and like the more you're exposed to it, the more you lose your goddamn mind. Yeah, like, I, I I like that angle of it a lot. Yeah, this was in my top twenty, but not my top ten. I, mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. I just didn't personally feel that strongly passionate about it, mm-hmm. even though like just on an objective level, like the craft of it and the audacity of filming a movie on in that harsh of a condition yeah because i think most of the effects not the seagulls entirely but most of just the weather and stuff is like real and shot yeah. on camera wow. and just the performances of these two people like fighting yeah. for screen time and, like <laughs> farting in each other's faces and like masturbating into the sea uh it a very visceral like gross horny disgusting movie i, I liked it a lot and I laughed a lot. It's a very funny yeah, movie. Yeah, it is very you might funny. not catch based on how we're describing it. Like, yeah. a lot of good jokes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just flip-flop this. Uh, Hanna's number two and James is number one of the year. Look, I'm a sucker for Adam Sandler in dramatic roles. <laughs> I, really, I really am. Like, and I rewatched Punk Trunk Love recently. I'm like, holy shit, this guy can act. Mm-hmm. But, but this one to me is like, well, we're talking about Uncut Gems. This movie, it's kind of a simple story. It's directed by the um, Safi Safdie. Safdie, who did um, Good Times, mm-hmm. which I loved. But what this movie has, like, and it's kind of like we were talking about earlier with Her Smell, how it had that quality. Similar of like, vibe, yeah. It's like, oh, I don't want to watch this. Like, I'm, I hate this, but I love it. Like, I'm, this had that in spades and, like, I think why I put this so high is like it had that energy from the start to the very beginning and it was like 100 miles an hour and it didn't let the gas up at all. It was just like it's putting you in his world of he plays this like gambling addict who is also this like big time jewelry dealer. Mostly for athletes and rappers. Yeah, world. he's not really he's like in with them, but he's like this like Jewish got like you know what i mean he's like this jewish manhattan jewelry dealer whatever and i feel like a lot of modern movies make new york feel kind of sanitized in a way but when you actually go there it's loud and it's chaotic and it's not fun like to me it's just like anxiety of like oh my god there's so many people and so many noises Mm -hmm. and so like the score of this movie, it's pulsating. Onothrick's Point Never, right? Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Like experimental, like noise, music on very like loud in the mix. Mm-hmm. What surprised me this time was they use a lot of saxophone instead of like synths, which I did not expect from them because the, their good time score is like very synth heavy. Synth yeah. heavy. But this is more organic feeling and it, and so it's basically this guy like going on this downward spiral of like addiction and his addiction is like gambling and the thrill of like betting on sports teams and all this stuff. And like his family's falling apart and his mistress is like leaving him. And he's got all these creditors like out threatening to beat him up. And <laughs> he's like just like hanging on by a thread. And he's like 
placing all these outrageous bets on stuff and he's like wheeling and dealing in the same way that her smell like gave me a sense of dread and anxiety this movie like i was on the tips of my toes throughout the entire fucking thing Mm -hmm. and i feel for me like great films and great art should be confrontational and are like at least make you go outside of your comfort zone and this entire movie i was like holy shit like scared for this guy but i also like Adam Sandler has this very humanizing quality about him that I think, you know, in Punch Drunk Love and mm-hmm. other dramatic roles, he has this sweetness and this something that comes across in he's, the camera. He's like weirdly comforting. He is, right? Yeah. Like, like when I look at him, I feel sorry for him. Like, mm-hmm. and like, there's something very human about him. And when he does these dramatic roles, like that comes across and like, I really empathize with him. Yeah. Even though he's a bad guy making really bad decisions. I don't, I don't know. I got a, like a Moondog uh, exception here where I don't really empathize with him too much. It's just like you are burning every social bridge that you've ever crossed for the hope of maybe making out on this like ultimate score. And the, the fun of the movie is the panic and like watching those walls close in on him as like all his like stuff doesn't work out the way he expects it to. Oh man. But if it was any other actor, this movie wouldn't have worked Mm. as well for me. But like, I hate to say it, but like Adam Sandler has this like quality that like is truly like magnetic and I feel for him. And Mm -hmm. like the way this movie ends, like I I won't spoil it, but the ending of this movie was truly a gut punch Mm -hmm. where my mouth was on the fucking floor for like a full five to 10 minutes where with a gambling addict, the high is like, I'm up like 1.5 million or I'm down 1.5 and, and he finally wins and then shit gets real. And I just like, didn't feel that much emotion in any movie this year to like, for an addict like to be on his highest high and to have the rug taken out from underneath him in that moment was truly like tragic. Like he is a tragic figure in this movie. I don't know. It just like it blew me away. <laughs> I, I love, I, I love this movie so much. And I know Brandon's a fan of like Good Times. I liked Good Time more. They were working at the same thing. Yeah. That anxiety mm-hmm. and the score being a big part of it. But I didn't identify with the character as much in Good Time. You know, with the Robert Pattinson and dealing with his brother. I really was, like, empathizing with, like, Adam Sandler in this role. What I think makes this movie different from Good Time is definitely the casting. Like, so much of it overlaps with Good Time. Like, Mm -hmm. the Honor Thirst Point Never score is brought back. It's the same grimy New York City it's the same structure where you're watching someone burn every social bridge they cross and exploiting other people to satisfy this like selfish, sort of small-minded goal. I think in good time, that worked better for me dramatically because this guy is such a scumbag and is basically using the little he has in the world, which is based on the fact that he's handsome and white, and using that to exploit people. And it gets so unlikable and gross that as a character study, it really worked for me. Now, repeating that exact same set of things, the only thing that's different is you've swapped out Robert Pattinson with Adam Sandler. The thing about Adam Sandler is he's fucking funny. Like, 
I laughed a lot during yeah. this movie. And yeah. the tension is so high because it's the same, like, throat hold, like, ah, oh, what's mm-hmm. going to happen? Like, thing is good time. But Adam Sandler does his yell, like, apoplectic rage that he does. And, like, you know, when Happy Gilmore, when he misses a shot and smashes his golf club, <laughs> yeah. he's basically yelling like that throughout this entire movie. Mm-hmm. You almost expect him to have a heart attack before he gets to, like, fulfill but his that- plans. And what I like about the movie is that it turns good time into a comedy, which is so fucked up. Like, it's like a feel-bad comedy. And I don't remember what movie I was talking about earlier where, oh, Parasite, where, Mm -hmm. like, there's all these disparate elements, and then they come together as, like, a farcical conclusion where everyone is trapped in this one small room, and you get the big, like, Shakespearean payoff for, like, everything he's been doing. And it's both a farce and a tragedy at the same time. Mm -hmm. I'm impressed by how you could turn good time into a comedy. That is weird. (laughs) I don't necessarily want to see them do this a third time, though, because as I was watching, I was like, well, I've seen you do this before. It's 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 funny this time, which is different, but for the most part, I've seen this exact bag of tricks. Um, and yeah, that Sandler performance is the only thing that really changes the texture of it. It did it enough for me to really like the movie, but uh, that's about the only d- change. And Good Time was more of a surprise, like blunt force, like, what is this? Like, how can I not breathe right now? Um, The novelty was more strong, I think, the first time. But that Adam Sandler energy is that, like, boyish lashing out. Again, same thing in Punch Drunk Love. Like, he is a fragile, hurt boy. I don't empathize with this character, so I I can't really really relate to you (laughs) on that front. You don't feel that at all? Like, No, he's a monster. And he's exploiting other people. He's exploiting specifically these Ethiopian, um, like miners like people who are mining jewels he's exploiting right. their labor mm-hmm. and more so like you could almost justify like oh he doesn't see up front the he knows what he's doing but and kevin garnett calls him out on that it. and that scene is so great where they have like an understanding where like you're exploiting me <laughs> yeah and- that, that doesn't vindicate him it drags the other guy down to his level but also he's exploiting his employees and his family and people who he can borrow sums of money from right under his nose. He has no problem exploiting anyone to fulfill these self-serving goals. So in that way, I don't think he's any different than the scumbag Robert Pattinson plays. He's just funnier. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this movie is about exploiting, like using this small amount of power you can scrape together for like the most evil self-serving purpose possible. I I, I took it more as like a movie about addiction and about gambling addiction. That'll do that to you. And about how like, (laughs) it's about getting a high and like, that filtered through this like New York City environment of like all these bells and whistles and the anxiety of just being constantly like on guard and just I'm really drawn recently to like movies that really feel anxious like are really getting at what it feels like to be full of anxiety and I you know I understand that he's not the most sympathetic character but first of all I actually I do side more with James on the like and you compared it to her smell and to me those movies are very different because i could not watch her just be vicious and kind of spiteful to the people around her i do feel like he was trying to be compassionate or like he had some semblance of community or like feeling towards his family even though he was just like totally fucking it up like the thing that was different to me about good time is like the global connection like the my favorite moments were connecting the rock that in the beginning is shown 
you know, people are like it is exploitation of labor and, you know, they're starting a riot in the beginning because this guy's legs sliced open. And then these men are looking at this rock and then it goes into the rock and then it goes into like Adam Sandler's colonoscopy, which that's hilarious. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> and and then, you know, and Kevin Garnett is looking at the stone and, and Adam Sandler is talking about it. He's saying like this stone has all of human history inside of it. So it's like there is this ancient connection between us and the earth and that is shown in these precious stones that we do horrific things to other people to harvest and even he's even talking in the beginning about these Ethiopian Jews as if like these are his people because he's Jewish too because but he's obviously exploiting them and then he goes on later to say like oh well you know a hundred thousand dollars for them it's a lifetime of money so he's claiming some kind of history with them while he's exploiting them for his own personal gain and I think like people have done horrible horrible things to other people for beautiful stones and they're missing this deeper kind of human connection it's the same thing as us and Parasite, where, like, yeah. you're ruining other people's lives for your, like, daily pleasures, right. whether or not you see that pain, the effect is the same. Yeah. He is maybe worse than us and Parasite, though, because he knows what yeah. he's doing, and he still does it anyway. Yeah. I So I, like, can't help but love movies about these, like, weaselly people that do horrific things and, and kind of prosper in the end. I, do, I don't know why, because... Those are the kind of people, again, like in Moondog, that I despise in real life. But I think the thing that like brought this to number two was that whole mythology and the, the connection with like the deeper earth. I thought that was really interesting, and I did not expect that from this movie at all. Well, I'm going to um, ruin all of my like hipster cred with all my outlier picks here. <laughs> and my number one movie was on all four of our lists. It was number six on James's, number five on Hannah's, number two on Britney's, and my number one was Midsummer by Ari Aster. Yay. Yes. Florence Pugh, the MVP of 2019. Mm, she's yes. great. She starred in Fighting With My Family as pro wrestler Paige, and also in Little Women <laughs> as... Uh, oh, Amy. Amy. Yeah. The, the villain of Little Women, <laughs> more <Yeah>. or less. <laughs> the little villain. In this movie, she plays a grad student who hears from back home that her sister has double homicided her parents and killed herself. Disconnected from this horrific event, she still has to deal with the trauma of it, obviously, and her community that she's formed uh, at this anthropology school Jesus. is this shitty boyfriend and his shithead friends who have no empathy for what she's actually going through. They're in this like relationship that should be over, and he will not end it because he is a weasel who will do no work for anything. <laughs> and that becomes the central comedy of the movie is her boyfriend Christian will not do anything for himself and will not put forth any effort. And his inaction causes a lot of hurt and pain, whereas her suffering goes on and gets worse because she has no one to empathize with her. This comes out because the two of them and his anthropology buddies travel to the Swedish festival to study their Midsummer Festival. It is a more or less remake of The Wicker Man. Uh, these, you know, Swedish people do this, like, harvest festival to ensure, like, prosperity for the next year, which involves a lot of human sacrifices and horrific horror moments. Mm -hmm. But really the core of the movie to me is a daylight horror comedy where the... Foolish actions, 
the self-serving weasel inaction and the academic self-absorption and like no concern for like actual human lives of all these like American tourists in this like foreign country vicariously playing tourist at this like real festival realize that they're actually involved with what's happening and they all suffer the consequences you would expect them to because of it. And the movie plays as one big joke on all of their bullshit. And Florence Pugh over the course of the film gradually emerges from this like she's almost like underwater with mm-hmm. her grief. Like she can't even think. She's a little dazed. Anytime says someone says the word family, she like shrinks back into herself mm-hmm. and like gets even more like dark and like self-destructive. And by the end, she finds this community with this like Swedish people and emerges and finally takes a fresh breath of air and it feels so good. I saw this a second time for the extended director's cut, which was vindicating in that the only thing they added though was they packed in a half an hour of more jokes and they were all at the expense of how shitty of a boyfriend Christian was. And people in the audience were like booing and hissing at him uh, anytime he said something that was like, you know, basically gaslighting her and making her feel like she was the problem when really he was just dragging this like relationship past its expiration date. This movie's funny. It's beautiful. The deaths are gruesome in the same way that Mm. Ari Aster uh, zooms in on consequences and shows you like a dead body and lingers on it. Instead of there being like an unexpected jump scare, it's an unexpected lingering on consequences. That all worked for me, but what really worked was just the relationship humor and I, I loved it very much all three times I watched it. <laughs> yes. What did y'all think of Midsummer? I loved it a lot. I am a huge Ari Aster fan. Mm-hmm. And I love how he deals with, like, those themes of grief. Like, I, you know, Hereditary was my favorite movie last year. And for that reason, too, I like how he explored, you know, grief and how everybody kind of deals with it in their own way. And in this movie, I love that. Like, how that he kind of played on that again. And it was a huge element that just like remained till the end and then she finally found people who gave a shit about her and understood how she was feeling and shared in her emotions <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah she it's like almost you know reflecting back on i'm like it's like she was fucking meant to be there like that's where she was supposed to go to find like people that actually gave a shit about her because obviously like no one in her circle gives a shit about her also, that fucking flower dress was bombed. Out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all the production and costume design in this movie is very Gorgeous. intricate. Yeah. Like, all the sets have these, like, hand-painted illustrations that tell you the entire plot of the movie, which yes. is, like, really funny on rewatch. Like, there's a lot of, like, winking jokes about what's to come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just looks beautiful on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. Both Hereditary and Midsummer have impacted me physically and viscerally more than any other movie. I've seen, like... Especially the beginning of Midsummer is just truly horrifying. I thought it was absolutely gorgeous. And I, the part that was most interesting to me was like empathy within a community and how much shame is associated with trauma and with, with sharing trauma. Like, you know, we have to pay somebody to listen to and process our grief with us you have to have an insurance policy that right will yeah make that affordable exactly. too the scene where the women are breathing with her was one of the most beautiful scenes of any movie i've seen mm-hmm. so i was like really high on the harga community the first time i saw the movie and then the second time kind of colored my interpretation a little bit it felt a little more manipulative performative yeah and i think especially during the their her like dance the the dance off i hadn't realized before that it feels 
rigged. It's staged, yeah. Yeah. And so it felt less like a community that was meant for her welcoming her and more a community making her feel like she was meant to be there, that she was like the May Queen because of who she was. I mean, it was a, a ploy to separate her from Christian. I think what's interesting is that it's both. Like, yeah. she needs them and they need her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that manipulate her into getting there and, like, staying there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that, yeah, they are using her, but she actually does need the relief right. they give her at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all the time in any community, people, I mean, nobody is ever just self-sacrificing. People are always using other people to fulfill their needs. So... Um, it's just about what works for you. Yeah, that's how I felt about Christian, too. It's like, yeah, he's a bad boyfriend, but does he really deserve to be, like, burned alive? And It buried? probably felt good at the moment. In a real-life criminal trial, no, but in the, like, emotions of this movie, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff his ass in a bear carcass and set him on like fire. Like saying, there's a manipulation involved where he is, like, being drugged and... He has this woman, like, obviously out for him to, like, she's putting pubes in. Like, there's an element of manipulation where, like, yeah, he's a bad guy. He's not a good boyfriend, but he's also, like, being manipulated to do bad shit. It goes beyond being a bad boyfriend. That doesn't feel right, though. It doesn't feel right because we're talking about, like, human morality outside the movie theater. In the movie theater, like, in this, you know, morality play we're watching... He represents, like, the worst aspects of, like, self-serving sloth and, like, inaction. And anytime someone does something odd, he takes no responsibility and makes no effort to, like, fix anything. And that the center of that is even his own relationship. He won't pull the, like, this is over cord. He wants her to do it and is manipulating her into doing it. And there's something so satisfying about the final speech in his face where they're like, you are the worst of humanity and we (laughs) must kill you for it (laughs) to purge ourselves of your like immoral filth. That felt so satisfying to me. I was crying, laughing in the movie theater, watching him get punished. But that feels like a theme we've touched on a lot today where like, you know, you're talking about Moondog and you're talking about these Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems, like these male characters that are just kind of infantile and they kind of let life just pass them by and they don't right. take a stand. And, you know, we're sort of like being very harsh on them Good. as we should. Good. I'm with you. Good. But I also have a little empathy for those characters. I don't. Too. And here's why. Okay. <laughs> it's terrible and it's prominent and it's something we've celebrated, especially in the Judd Apatow era of like overgrown man babies who get hot women in these like celebratory comedies. They've had their time in the sun and have like dominated <laughs> culture for a time while. Time to burn. And I feel like cinematically we're purging pop culture of these like figures and like showing them for how ugly they are. And it feels fucking good. Like they are scumbags and I love just dragging out like this is actually a destructive toxic force in our culture and we're better off without it. And yeah, that's why the ending you, of this movie is You don't feel good. like that toxic force is inside of you at all? Oh, for sure. I hate it's myself. Ins- <laughs> right. Well, it, it's inside of me too. Right, right. Like, right. Why these characters appeal to me is because like, I see something in them that I recognize in myself. It's the part of myself I don't like. And yeah, yeah. I wish I could burn it, but I can't. So <laughs> right, I have to watch right, someone but, else do it. Okay. <laughs> I, I think we have some understanding. Right. Okay. <laughs> Well, and one issue that I actually that I had with the movie, but 
after you said something about I've kind of like come around is that you know, so their friend recruits all of them to come to this midsummer festival and they I mean inevitably they were going to die like there was never a chance of them being righteous or moral and you know getting an easy out but there is this kind of pernicious idea that you can be a cultural tourist and their culture will have no impact on you or that you're pr- totally protected from them. You can just watch them like they're in a zoo, basically. You can piss on the tree where they right, and put it, all their ancestral yeah. ashes. And, you know, it's... <laughs> right. I didn't know. I was just peeing. Yeah, and you can steal their texts and use them for your research. And I do think that is kind of a toxic idea, especially in the Western world. So it, it does feel kind of just that they get their comeuppance. Like, you can't just... Yeah be a tourist and like experience our rituals vicariously and then like go home and you know make a book about it and the joy of watching this in a movie theater is you're not jury in a murder trial and deciding right. whether or not it's okay <laughs> that they killed people yeah. these are fictional characters and right. they're representing some aspect of humanity and you you get to watch it punished yeah. um and it feels good it's it's a funny movie yeah it, it, honestly at the end i feel great i smile <laughs> and i like i, I walk away feeling buoyant lighter it's a phenomenal film. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, we were talking about Scorsese earlier and like there's interesting filmmakers that are out right now, like mm-hmm. Eggers and Ari Aster and Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele, like Bong Joon-ho. I don't want to say we're in like some sort of heyday of film, but like film is just constantly evolving. And like there were so many good films from this year Mm-hmm. There's always, like, great film. And it is really exciting to see. Well, and so Robert Eggers and Ari Aster and Jordan Peele have all had, like, just two feature films. And their second one was weirder. Like, yeah. Like, they all went yeah. weirder for their second <laughs> one. And <laughs> all of them, like, I liked all six of those movies, too. So it's just exciting to see where they're going to continue to grow. Totally. Yeah. Well, that was our favorite movies of 2019. <laughs> Hopefully I can edit this down to a reasonable length, yeah. even though we didn't rehash a movie two or three times like we yeah. did on past episodes. But I'm glad we, you know, shined a light on each of these titles. I, this is a really strong crop of movies, like, overall. Yeah. For yes, sure. indeed. And to sort of continue this victory lap of five years of Swamp Flicks, four years of the podcast, the next two episodes, our next one is our 100th episode. And we're going to talk about some of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> it's like the topic yeah. we're tackling. A humble feat. Right. And then after that, we're going to do our best of the decade. So this is like our like self-indulgent like victory lap, yeah. like movies we love. So this is a good time to listen, I think. Uh, tell yeah. other people about the show. And check out SwampFlix.com. We post daily movie reviews and lists and articles and such. And each of us should have a printed version of the top ten list you heard today. Um, except James is going to be listed in the notes. So you get a sneak preview of that before you listen to this. And we'll see you all in a couple <laughs> weeks with uh, some of the greatest movies of all time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.